All right. Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley. For those of you listening on YouTube land, do me a favor and like, subscribe, all that good stuff. And I was really encouraged last week. There was a lot of people just going on there and just saying something as simple as hello from South America or wherever you're from. And, uh, you know, Shalom from Antarctica. Just leaving a comment on anything and saying hello helps this ministry out. It's one of the ways you can help support this ministry and just help the channel grow. And uh, so that's all really appreciated. We're going to jump right into this. Last week, of course, we talked about uh, some wacky subjects like time travel and the Trumps and the Back to the Future movies and, of course, the Mandela Effect. And I barely really got my feet wet in, in the Mandela Effect. So we're going to be talking about more concrete observations tonight. And I have a lot of material to go through. So let's get straight to it. As you see, the Mandela Effect by Noel Joshua Hadley. And um, who is that That fine-looking man there on page three, Ed McMahon, Publishers Clearinghouse. I can still picture the driveway and then the sidewalk leading up to my childhood home in Clovis, California, as well as the window, which I might look out upon them, imagining a scenario whereas Ed McMahon might lumber towards the front porch and the doorbell with a camera crew and that big, fat, million-dollar check of his a scenario which I had so often seen on television. If you remember Ed McMahon's part in Publisher's Clearinghouse narrative, including a host of commercials, then your memories are wrong. Go ahead, I dare you. Look it up. Ed McMahon never did any of that. And then where did I get those memories from? Hands down, the Ed McMahon Mandela effect has to be one of the strangest of the lot. We're not simply dealing with a corporate logo change or a swapped out line in a movie this time. No, history itself has been altered. Even the gatekeepers don't know what to do with this one. Assuming you committed uh, to that web search, just as I asked of you, then you have probably observed that the Intel net is fraught with confusion on the matter. Everybody I have spoken to remembers Good old Ed from uh, Johnny Carson's late night show, his right-hand man, is I guess a straight man, with Publishers Clearinghouse rather than the alternative. Apparently, he was spokesperson for American Family Publish Publishing now. Have you ever even heard of that company? I haven't. Not until the Mandela Effect came along. To remove a detractor, you too will have to suppress your own memories and confess that they are not nearly so trustworthy as you once thought if the official narrative is to be upheld. Now, the Wikipedia has an article on Publishers Clearinghouse. I linked it there, gave you a little uh, cutout uh, snippet. But I couldn't find anything about Ed McMahon while coming through it. Ed is completely snubbed. They don't even talk about him in the article. But I did manage to dig up this little nugget of information. Time Inc. or Incorporated, the same people who brought us bathroom reading materials such as Life Magazine, formed American Family Publishers in 1977 to compete with PCH after the company refused repeated requests for a larger share of sales revenue. Their attempts eventually failed, seeing as how AFP folded in 1998. Fascinating how a dummy company, which nobody remembers, hosts a spokesperson when everybody recalls McMahon working for the very company which they were supposedly envious of. 
That's the twist to this lemon. The answers we see can be found a couple of sentences earlier. Publisher, in the, the snippet I gave you, Publisher's Clearinghouse started its first sweepstakes to increase subscription sales. The Ento community needed a way for people to read their literature, obviously. And if it's a pyramid scheme you're after, then PCH and AFB were ultimately run by the same people. Nobody remembers AFP, though. It's a dummy company in a storefront window. And I wouldn't be in the least surprised if it never existed at all. Ed McMahon was either given a fictional backstory for gaslighting purposes, or the confusion was planned decades in advance. If it's the second option, then AFP sat there quietly, unnoticed by everyone, waiting to make its move. And we see here competitors. Publishers Clearinghouse was a competitor to American Family Publishing that ran similar sweepstakes. The two companies were often mistaken for each other, with Star Search host Ed McMahon and the 25,000 Pyramid host Dick Clark, the spokespeople for AFP, mistaken for representatives of the better-known PCH. PCH remains in business and promotes its products by means of sweepstakes. Of course, PCH is public, Publishers Clearinghouse. American Family Publishers also has an article on the Wikipedia, and as you can probably imagine, our manipulators are having a field day at the amusement park, giving the gas lamps an overhaul via, <laughs> via titty twist. In reply to the mass confusion, it claims the two companies were often mistaken for each other. No, not often. Try all the time. Everybody shares in the confusion. On a side note, I've never spoken with anybody who thought the Hamburglar stole from Burger King. Can you imagine the gatekeeper responses on that one? I can. This, by the way, there's no Mandela effect where the Hamburglar steals from Burger King, but you guys get the, the point. Nobody has memories of the Hamburglar stealing from Burger King because he was stealing from McDonald's. The same article then states that Ed McMahon and the 25,000 Pyramid host Dick Clark shared spokesperson duties, but apparently nobody noticed. That's the other half of this Mandela effect, which nobody seems to talk about. And anyways, do you see what they did there? They have Dick Clark and the 25,000 Pyramid holding hands because very few think of Dick Clark and then recall any one of Pyramid's five uh, incarnations on television. Uh, there were five different shows, apparently all with Dick Clark. I'm not saying the 25,000 Pyramid didn't exist. It did. It's just, why not connect Dick Clark with American Bandstand? He hosted it from 1956 to 1989. Dick Clark is largely responsible for introducing rock and roll, but perhaps even more so creating youth culture. And let's not overlook his yearly jaunts in Times Square, a little TV special called Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve. For decades, people have been turning into uh, turning to Dick Clark to ring in the new year. While gaslighting us, the Wikipedia doesn't seem interested in making those connections. There is a point to all of this. Had Ed McMahon co-hosted with Dick Clark, people would notice. What our gaslighters are telling us is that we not only confuse the company, we have completely neglected to notice another celebrity whom he shared spokesperson duties with. That's how bad our memories are, apparently. If this were in any way true, I'm more inclined to believe we'd all, uh, we'd all identify Publishers Clearinghouse with Dick Clark rather than McMahon. McMahon may have been Johnny Carson's straight man, but to anyone else, especially Dick Clark, he would have played second fiddle. 
But nobody is claiming Dick Clark was a spokesperson for PCH. During a 1991 episode of Late Night, The Tonight Show's Johnny Carson presented host David Letterman with a million-dollar check. His exact words were, and I quote, Ed McMahon could not be here, but it seems, David, that you are the $1 million winner. Ha, ha, ha. Very funny. When he turns the check face up for the studio audience and the, and the video cameras, it is signed from Publishers Clearinghouse. Oh, that must be it. We all turn into da- we turn, tuned in to David Letterman and saw Johnny Carson make a joke about his wingman of nearly 30 years working for the wrong company. That's why we all hoped Ed McMahon would ring our doorbell because of a confused joke made by the king of late night, but which happened to land on late, late, late television when McMahon wasn't around. That's the brilliance of the Mandela effect. Nothing is by accident. It's instances such as this one, which are purposely left there or rather planted as residue for gaslighting purposes. Now, the Golden Girls has another reference to, to Ed McMahon and Publishers Clearinghouse uh, worth reviewing. It happens in the second season, uh, second episode. And there's a link to it there if you care to watch it. In one scene, Betty White answers the phone and says, What? I'm one of the winners of the Publishers Clearinghouse? Ed McMahon wants to see me right away? Her gasps hold the interests of Dorothy and Blanche for a moment, but then Rose says into the receiver... I should leave my Burt Reynolds ticket on the dresser before I go. At this instant, Dorothy screams into the other room, Ma, get off the phone. The joke only works if Sophia mistook Ed McMahon as a spokesperson for Publishers Clearinghouse, as well as Rose, the recipient of the joke. But also the millions of viewers who regularly tuned in. The Golden Girls was wildly successful because they were good writers attached to the show. And when it comes to the viewers, there's always that one person in the room who feels obliged to correct everyone's laughter. You would think that somebody out there would play the part of comedy police and arrest the situation when claiming, but Ed McMahon doesn't work for Publishers Clearinghouse. He works for another lesser known company. And not just for that episode, there should have been fact checkers at countless holiday gatherings. Some people have tried to use the Fletch movies as a residue because of the scene where Chevy Chase finds the solution to his problems when holding up an envelope with Ed McMahon's picture on it. Here's his quote. Hey, I think our problems may just be solved. Ed McMahon, think I, or Ed McMahon, think I just won a million bucks. Yeah, Erwin M. Fletcher, you choose. Woo-wee, oh boy, I lost. Yeah, sorry. He opens it up and realizes he lost. Problem, which is what everybody did. We all opened up and realized we lost. Problem is, he never says Publishers Clearinghouse. Also, if you zoom in upon the envelope, it reads American Family Publishers, thereby directing us to the official narrative. Still, though, how is it that Ed McMahon was such a successful spokesperson for a company which went out of business because it couldn't compete with a far more successful company without any recognizable spokesman. If this is the case, then he failed at his job, Ed McMahon. And these cultural references are misplaced and in vain. It isn't just me who dreamt of Ed McMahon ringing our doorbell, you know. The scheme only worked because countless others hoped for the same experience, and apparently it failed measurably. Uh, 
And I leave you with that point. It's just so bizarre that he was so popular for this company that we that went out of business because we all mistook it for the wrong company. That is the worst marketing ever. And um, it's all part of the gaslighting process. Now, that was just a warm-up for the, the night. The next one, the Thinker-Mandela effect is a headache. This one is just wild and crazy. And... Um, I'll just tell you straight up. I think that there, I think that there are many Mandela effects to this one. And in fact, uh, my memory of what the thinker used to look like may have, probably was not the original one, telling us that this has been ongoing for many, many decades. And he has been the uh, one of the biggest um, victims of the uh, the effect. I need to stop for a drink of coffee. I'm still waking up tonight, still warming up tonight. The thinker Mandela effect is a headache. If your former reality is one in which the thinker sculpture have the backside of his fingers pressed to his forehead, then I am with you. We think alike. His chin is resting upon his hand now, which is no longer clenched, but that is only the beginning of his cognitive, cognitive problems. The dude invokes a whole new level of Mandela because it is not just one effect we're dealing with, but two or three and maybe even dozens. We're facing a multiplex of paradoxes and it is very difficult to know which is the right one. Even my own memory may not be the original. Don't you love how I would just introduce this with what I'm saying right now? Assuming his history has not been altered as well, then this is what we know. The thinker was initially named The Poet and was part of a large commission begun in 1880 for a doorway surround called The Gates of Hell. I am nabbing this information from Wikipedia, by the way, and you can follow along if you hit that link. Typically, I like to paste snippets from screenshots to prove that I'm not making this information up, and also because the boys down at the lab like to tinker with the facts after publishing papers such as this one, but I'm willing to play the game of Russian roulette with the chuck wagon of fact checkers if you are. The artist's name was Auguste, or Auguste Rodin. Rodin based his doorway on the 14th century poem, The Divine Comedy by Dante, leading many to believe the nude figure is none other than the famed poet sitting at the gates of hell. Now, a lot of people will disagree with that because the thinker is naked and uh, nowhere in the book is Dante naked. Uh, is he naked? But that's just a side note so, to the fact that people have argued the identity of this, uh, the sculpture for many, many decades. Okay, fine. I caved. And it's so short a span. I lasted only a paragraph without taking out the scissors and glue stick this time around. But then look at that information. Why don't you? It says there are 28 monumental-sized bronze casts strewn about our flat, motionless realm. But it actually doesn't say flat, motionless realm. I added that. That's important to know, and I can only assume the, M the ME has altered every last one of them, though of that we should not be too entirely certain. It's not what I wanted, wanted you to see, though. Read the first sentence, which says, The history of the progression from models to castings is still not entirely clear. Why is its origin story so vague? It's not like we're dealing with obscure artwork. Rodin commissioning 28 statues to art museums and government buildings across the world tells me his work was a wild success. There should be documentation, paperwork. I'm not 
I'm not I'm I'm thinking the historians have been thrown into confusion due to conflicting information because of you know what. Even its origin stories may have gotten its wires crossed in the Mandela effect. What is apparently agreed upon is that Rodin's first full-scale model was presented at the Salon, uh, Salon des Beaux Arts in Paris. I totally butchered that in France. My, French, my apologies. In 1904. So uh, presented in Paris in 1904, the original. A public subscription then financed a bronze casting, which became the property of the city of Paris and was put in front of the Pantheon. In 1922, the original bronze was moved to the Rodin Museum. Adding to the mystery is a personal friend of Rodin's, George Bernard Shaw. That should be a recognizable name for many of you. ArtUK.org has Shaw introducing Rodin to the photographer Alvin Langdon Coburn. Both Shaw and the photographer witnessed the unveiling of Rodin's thinker sculpture, assumedly in 1904, and then decided to imitate Rodin's iconic sculpture. Shaw suggested that Coburn make a nude photographic portrait of him in the same pose as the sculpture. Follow the link to Art UK and tell me what they don't show you. Shaw's imitation of Rodin's sculpture. They don't show it. Strange, since they think to mention it, and the entire page is all about showing off his uh, various portraits. Well, I am showing it to you. Busted. Yes, that is how I remember the thinker pose as well. Mostly. Though I think Shaw's position is still off. I'll show you which one I think is correct in a little while. No wonder why the modern historians are thrown into confusion. Rodin's closest friend was there for the unveiling and even wanted to help steer his creation towards the goalie net of a cultural icon, but then couldn't manage to mirror the very portrait he was so carefully aiming to mimic. Right. Or I should say right. If, if it is the thinker's modern incarnation that we are using for a plumb line, then the only thing he correctly managed is that they're both nude, seated, uh, seated in thinking. Complications ensue. This is where it gets really weird. When Shaw posed once again as a thinking model in 1910, same guy, same friend, posing as the thinker, four years after initially helping to popularize his friend's artwork. You can see I put a little black line there because we are a family, um, uh, <laughs> a family magazine here. The latest rendition is slapped haphazardly together. He is seated outside with his shoes on, and it seems quite apparent that he's amusing himself with the last-minute improvisation to his swimming or sunbathing engagement. Nobody seems to remember this picture. I'm not saying it appeared out of nowhere, though the option is most certainly on the table. And with, of course, AI today, you never really know. It certainly wasn't circulated like Coburn's nude, because really, aside from one of his uh, repressed homosexual lovers who would actually want to take a, who would want to take a second look at this garbage, this photo I'm showing you. It's it's a terrible photo. I'm sorry to show it to you. Who said detective work doesn't require getting our fingernails dirty? The normies claim we're looking at the real thing, but that just goes to show how terrible their observ their observation skills are. If it is a modern rendition of Rodin's sculpture he's after, then he has completely failed on nearly every level. 
The wrong hand is resting upon his chin, and his other fingers should be hanging comfortably over his kneecap. That's not what we're given, though. It is another rendition of... Uh, is it another rendition of the finger from an alternative, alternative or alternate dimension? Oh, no, just no, please, no. Now, we come upon the many loves of Dobie Gillis. This is where, this is where it gets even stranger. The many loves of Dobie Gillis aired during Kennedy's Camelot era. And though the show was before my time, I was able to catch some short-lived reruns on Nick at Night back in the day, back in the, the 90s when they were showing it. The Finger episode wasn't one of them, at least not one that I watched. I wish I could tell you, uh, tell you, tell you I've seen it, but in the very least, there are some stills of Dobie Gillis nuzzling up to co-star Bob Denver of Gilligan's Island fame, which has some Mandela effects to it as well, already typecast as a pot-smoking beatnik. And the Finker sculpture in the background is, is there. It is, you know. Of course, the funny thing about Bob Denver is that he actually he was typecast, but he actually was a pot-smoking beatnik. So I guess he was just playing himself. I will ask you to take a closer look at the Finker statue, though. No, no, not Dobie. The sculpture. It's completely different from Rodin's modern molding, and in fact, falls somewhere in the ballpark of Shaw's 1910 portrait. Dobie does manage to model himself after the sculpture presented to him, and from the looks of it, they went out of their way to get it right. Which is so strange, because this doesn't even match up with anything else. They're all different. I will remind you again that our current reality does not bend to the molding which Dobie is offering. Notice my own memory telling us that there are perhaps multiple M.E. swaps being overlaid together. The thinker's left elbow should be pressed upon his left leg, though here it is his right upon the left. Everything is swapped. Rather interestingly, Dobie's hand is cupped over his knee, whereas the modern incarnation has his fingers kind of just dangling there. That's the way I remember the thinker, with his hand cupped over a knee, even if Dobie's statue plays off like a mirror image. And then we have this here. Uh, I'm not so certain about the context of this photo, but it appears as though we are once again being treated to another thinking mimicker in which we are pressed to consider any number of ME changes throughout the decades, much of which left behind a paper trail. We're on page uh, 15 if you need caught up. Not even the 1989 IBM commercial manages to stick the landing. Or does it? For once, the thinker has his knuckles pressed to his forehead rather than the chin just as I remember him. Got to give credit where it is due. Also, it is his right hand rather than his left as well, which feels a whole lot more natural for the average person. His left fingers are cupped over the kneecap. Wait a second. This is the thinker sculpture. Well, I'll be. In the very least, it is how the sculpture is recollected in my memory. Exactly is this commercial right here. How do you remember him? Appropriate. Since the commercial is from my childhood, I turned nine in 1989, and look what is happening. IBM is turning thinker sculptures out on a production line like it's nobody's business. How embarrassing for a computer company if they got the pose wrong. It would be like saying they were mass producing a faulty product. Returning once more to George Bernard Shaw, would you say he is right-handed or left-handed? I tried to seek the answer on the internet, but Google wouldn't spill the beans. This will once again require detective work. 
I'm showing you three photos of George Bernard Shaw, and with surmise, he was right-handed. Well, then, according to the Coburn photo, it was his left hand pressed to his forehead, and that would feel very unnatural for any philosophical or poetic thinker. Some of you will tell me that is further evidence that the 1904 GBS studio portrait is the correct one, but I'm here to tell you that they're both wrong. Perhaps they were accurate at one time, and who is to say my version is the final authority? All I can tell you is that the 1989 computer commercial depicts the, represent the representative thinker of my former reality, and I'm willing to bet there are thousands, if not millions of others, who will agree with me on this one. Now, there's a smaller size, size bust of the Thinker sculpture up for sale, 332 Americanos, if you're interested, on sale from $1,068. That's a $736 savings. What are you waiting for? Also, this version is right-handed, whereas the modern sculpture is not. So that's a plus. His knuckles to the chin, though. Close but no cigar. No wonder why it's on sale. Nobody wants that version. But wait. Take a look at the product description. With his fist on his forehead. It's in the fine print. Why the discrepancy? What is going on and why do the product descriptions disagree with the products in our current reality? There's other references to the thinker pose can, that can be found all throughout the art and entertainment world, as we would expect of a cultural relic, though none can agree. Is his hand pressed to his forehead or his chin? And then secondly, which of the two hands are we going with? And you see here a comment. I like this comment. I, I wish I were putting in more comments from people, but this comes from a Melissa Taylor in uh, 2018. She says, I'm 67 years old. At age 12, I began getting migraine headaches. Headaches. I remember seeing a picture of the thinker and wondering if he got migraines too, since he had his forehead resting on his fist. I remember fist to forehead and I don't get migraines anymore with a smiley face there. I've come across a great deal, many phenomenal comments during this research project, many of which connect memories with sound logic. And here is one of them. A 67-year-old Melissa Taylor specifically recalls the fist to the forehead because at the age of 12, she fell victim to migraine headaches and identified the thinker with her plight in life. Thank you, she no longer has them. Still, though, there's, that's about as spot on as somebody with diabetes wondering how the cookie monster doesn't succumb to their circumstances. You see what I'm saying? It would be like if the cookie monster no longer eats cookies anymore. You never know what they're going to try to pull off. A headache sounds about right. The context in all of this originally is Dante. Tell me, if you had just been given a tour of torment and were presently sitting at the gates of hell, rethinking your life, would you press your hand to your chin or your forehead? One pose speaks of inner turmoil, maybe even spiritual anguish, whereas what we're given is more of a hmm moment. I'm not seeing Tylenol or aspirin with what we're given, though might I suggest a more holistic approach to the problem solving of good health. And I'll leave you with this here. Uh, this comes from a uh, for the National Gallery of Art, to this snippet here of information. And let's see what I wrote here as commentary. And there you have it. The thinker's own creator, that would be the artist, has been caught clinch-fisted. 
really, there's no better way of saying it. I am showing you a quote from the National Gallery of Art, and it's attributed to Auguste Rodin. Here is how he described his own masterpiece. What makes my thinker think is that he thinks not only with his brain, with his knitted brow, his dis distended nostrils and compressed lips, but with every muscle of his arms, back and legs, with his clenched fist and gripping toes, busted. Anyone who recalls the outstretched fingers as it appears today does not share the same memories as the very man who sculpted him. As if the present M.E. couldn't get any creepier, how in the world are so many people mimicking the thinker and still getting the pose wrong? Their fists are to their forehead. Just look over your shoulder, lady. There's even what looks to be uh, school children on a field trip, and not one chaperone, think chaperone thinks to tell them misrepresenting the sculpture seated right behind them. Unbelievable. Welcome to the Mandela Effect if you haven't been properly greeted already. All right, this one is a favorite of mine, the JFK assassination. Stopping for a drink of coffee. Admit it. The moment you heard about the six seats is when you picked up the phone and called your dad. The online records will show it was June of 2016 when the latest ME news broke over the web and many sons began calling their fathers. June 4th is the earliest date that I can find, June 4th, 2016. I remember the day and it's most certainly what I did. I called him up and asked how many people were in the 1961 Lincoln Continental convertible that he was assassinated in. Without batting an eye, my father said six. Not the answer I was expecting to hear. I was shocked. Speaking for myself, it was always four seats and always had been. Why the additional passengers now? My father was born in 52 and would have been 11 on November 22nd, 1963. When President John F. Kennedy rode in a motorcade through uh, Daly Plaza in downtown Dallas. Like any good baby boomer, the Kennedy assassination was of particular interest to him. He'd even written a paper on a potential second shooter in, in high school, back in the 60s. You'd think that would discredit me, being born 17 years after the fact. But as I was saying, many sons began calling their fathers, and their results were split right down the middle. Among the hundreds of shared experiences, it seems to have mattered very little how many dozens or hundreds of times one has viewed the Zapruder film. There were... There were those among the baby boomers who were shocked, shocked to see the additional two passengers, whereas nothing had changed for others. Such is the nature of the Mandela effect. And another thing, when asked about the number of passengers, many reportedly responded with the number, with the number four, but then immediately changed their answer to six, as if the new reality was settling in. The four-seater people were dropping like flies. Supposing you derive from the six-seater reality, then it will be difficult to imagine the Lincoln convertible in any other light. We're nearly 10 years into this, into the Mandela effect, and I still can't adjust my eyes to the new absolute. 
first and foremost, the roll bar is a total eyesore. That was missing. Texan Governor John Connolly had a wife, but she wasn't in the car. Her name is Nellie, by the way. I couldn't even tell you who that is sitting in front of Connolly either. In my reality, it was always the Texan governor seated as the front passenger riding shotgun directly in front of the president. I've read all the criticism too. I am told I put such a focus on John and Jackie all these years that I didn't think to notice John and Nellie. Oh, that must be it. You caught me. Is that pink Nellie is wearing? So is Jackie. They're both wearing pink. My eyes can't stop zigzagging back and forth between the two of them. It's quite impossible to miss the governor's wife in this reality. Another detail I'm having difficulty with is the black trim on Jackie uh, Kennedy's dress. The pink Chanel suit and the pink pillbox hat I recall, as well as the white gloves. But my eyes are drawn directly to the black trim now. That wasn't always so. Correction. Uh, I looked it up. She is wearing a navy trim rather than a black one. Easily mistakable. Happens all the time. It's actually crazy because now I see I see the, the, the navy blue, but you know, it looks black when you first look at it. Even in black and white photos, such uh, such as the swearing in on Air Force One, my eyes are still drawn away from LBJ to the trim around Jackie's neckline. It stands out and dominates the page. I'm not saying she never wore a darker hue. All I can tell you is that Kennedy, that the Kennedy assassination is not the same experience as it once was. Many details have changed, tiny, minute ones. You have to re-examine every detail. One thing I, I don't think I talked about in here was that um, you know, they may have digitalized the film. I mean, they, they obviously have. But uh, it, it was always a very grainy film. And some people say it was always black and white for them. I, I always remember color. But... It got really crystal clarity. It feels like a whole new film now. It's not the old film that I remember. From well, <laughs> I just got ahead of myself again. Amazing. I did this all the time. I gotta I gotta stop myself before I wreck myself or check myself with a drink of coffee here. For me, the Zapruder film was always in color, but some have insisted it was always black and white. They reported never seeing it in color until the Mandela effect, and I believe them. Of the black and white people, some recall four passengers and others six. That tells you there are at least several different realities colliding together. So just to back that up, some people were like, no, it was always six passengers, but the Mandela effect is that it's in color now because it was never in color. It was always in black and white. So that's, that's several different variations going on. John Connolly, though. I'm telling you, pictures such as this one never existed. Yes, his wife and the roll bar are new additions, but just as importantly, some of the conspiracies surrounding the JFK assassination are missing. I can no longer find any references to the driver turning around and shooting Kennedy. The mere suggestion would be an impossible one, given that he would have to point the gun directly through Nellie to get at the president. But at one time, it was a point of discussion. I remember having it. It seems ridiculous now. Who would argue that the driver shot Kennedy? You can't. But at one time, it was a plausible scenario. And here's another one. Follow the bunny rabbit trail with the provided link, and you will read the transcribed words of Dr. Peter David Better. Interesting fellow. He is speaking on August 21st, 1975, so about uh, only 12 years after the event. And what he has to say is 
impossible given the present scenario. You will have to scroll several paragraphs down to read it in the link uh, for yourself, though I have already done the heavy lifting for you. And um, so if you scroll down to page 25 here, uh, you can see it here in the highlighted section. I'm not going to read the whole paragraph uh, so that you get lost in the details, but it says, but that still left Governor John Connolly riding in the front seat, not the middle seat, the front seat ahead of the president. Well, he screwed that one up. This is one of the big early JFK conspirator, uh, conspiracy theorists. And then he says, the possibility existed that Connolly alone might be able to detect that some sort of device had been fired just behind him inside the car. Peter Better, it seems, was quite the character. He released a series of 80 audio newsletter tapes between 1975 and 1982, and I have only shown you a small snippet of them, obviously. Among other discussion points, Better claimed Lyndon B. Johnson was involved in the Kennedy assassination, that several public figures such as David Rockefeller, Henry Kissinger, and Jimmy Carter were already dead and being impersonated. Well, he was ahead of his game there, I'll tell you. Jonestown was a stage hoax which I fully agree with. I've, I've written on that. And that the U.S. government had developed weather modification weapons. Man, as I said, man, better was ahead of his time. This guy was into some deep stuff decades before any of us. Well-researched, too. How does a guy like that fail to recognize there were six people in the car? In his reality, reality there were only four or else he couldn't have pitted John Connolly in the front seat directly ahead of the president. It simply cannot be racked up to oversight either. Better is discussing the possibility of a shotgun blast from within the car. The theory only works if there are two rows of seats rather than three. There is the reality that I remember. The November 29, 1963 issue of Life magazine includes a picture of the four-seater which matches my memory, and many are claiming it is the smoking gun we're after. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but alas, it is not listed as Kennedy's Lincoln convertible. Life insists LBJ and his wife, Claudia Johnson, rode in this one. I can't help but agree with them. Every other media-backed photograph of Kennedy's convertible has changed, why would this solitary image remain? I guess it's possible, but uh, they basically all changed. Though the bouquet of roses are straight up suspicious. Jackie had roses. But then what about Lady Bird? Did she have roses? Seems to me like Life magazine was leading the reader to believe they were staring into Kennedy's vehicle, which is part of the mistake to begin with. And Life magazine is not being fully honest with this. Regardless, I can tell you with 100% certainty that the first time I have ever seen such a vehicle, a six-seater that is, was no earlier than June of 2016. Many have succumbed to the purge, but I will not be so easily absorbed. Also, I gave you the bad news first. There is residue, and I will now show it to you. Boom, there it is. The Historical Auto Attractions Museum in Roscoe, Illinois, of all places, has a replica of the four-seater car which JFK was assassinated in. Behind them is a second automobile that would be uh, Lady Bird and uh, Johnson's uh, vehicle. 
the museum claims it's it is the actual Secret Service car, which followed the Kennedys. Okay, never mind. It's a Secret Service car behind them. Uh, let me say that again. It was the actual Secret Service car, which followed the Kennedys on the day of, whereas the four-seater is just a replica, and thank heavens for that. Have the Lincoln been an original, then I would surmise it, too, would have conformed to our new sensibility. So at least we are left uh, with... So at least we are left with a car resembling what so many of us remember. The normies will be pressed to claim it is a terrible replica because here we have before us an auto museum which went out of its way, financially speaking, to acquire a piece of American history and yet failed to pay attention to the little details, apparently. They wouldn't be the only ones to do so. Flip the page because I am not done yet showing you the residue. A JFK assassination reconstruction film was produced by the U.S. Secret Service in 1963, the year of the assassination. So this came out within a month. This is like December of 63 we're talking about. And I'm only counting four people. I see the persons representing John, Jackie, John, and the driver, but that is all. Where is Nellie? Where is the person sitting in front of Connolly? I am showing you screenshots from my own personal viewing. There were only ever three passengers passengers and one driver. Don't take my word for it, though. Watch it for yourself. There's a link. And report back if you see anything different. Really, you should give it a view. The film is impressive. It seems mighty strange that the Secret Service would put so much time and effort into a reproduction, reliving the entire parade route for investigative purposes, only to leave out a key detail. Just look at what is being done. They're lining up a kill shot from the book depository window. And mind you, the Texas governor was shot in every version of reality. Uh, at least I haven't seen anybody say he, would, he never was shot. It is the trajectory of the bullet that they're after. Did the Secret Service not have a six-seater in their possession? Any investigation into the murder of a POTUS would be a spare-no-expense affair. The entire investigation would be thrown into question if a person sitting in front of Connolly were left out of the equation, especially if they're trying to line up the kill shot. Here's yet another oddity relating to the Kennedy assassination. The woman seated within the automobile um, is holding up a newspaper with a caption that reads, Kennedy slain on Dallas Street, and then look behind her. I spy an obelisk, but not just any obelisk. It's the Soldier's Monument in Daly Plaza. Just to the right of it is the Book Depository Building. It is clear what is going on here. We are staring in upon Dallas, and that is a replica automobile if ever I've seen one. Where is the roll bar and the added bench seat? The photo was included in a travel blog, regarding the different locations of particular interest to November 22nd, including Lee Harvey Oswald's bedroom, and was, up, and was dated to April 2015, one year before I believe the change happened. And so we are given something to think about. 50 years have passed since the Kennedy assassination. Yes, 50. Five, oh. Five decades are gone, half a century, and where are the six-seater replicas? You'd think somebody would have gotten on the bandwagon by now. The public school education failure was brought to you by our sponsor, the Mandela Effect. 
All right, now we're getting into the meat of tonight's discussion. We're going to be getting into, hopefully you guys enjoyed those so far. We're going to be getting into some of the biblical changes. The first one is the lion and the lamb, which I haven't decided yet, but that's probably what the video will be titled, the lion and the lamb. Actually, when I turn this into a book, I might call it the lion and the lamb. It's a good title. It's a title that no longer exists in our reality. I must be a glutton for punishment. Because the Bible used to say lion and the lamb. And I was one of those individuals who went around telling the Christian community about it. The subject is even something I covered in an article way back in the day, only to junk it in the wastebasket. A decision I have long regretted. Because I had to rewrite the whole thing. Partly. It took me a long time. That was the spring of 2017. The first quarter of Trump's administration. Today's date is 3-7-2023. A whopping six years have passed. I can't believe the years have passed. They're flying by so fast. And I'm just now getting back around to telling you about it. Like NASA and the moon landing, the process has been too painful to build up again. You're probably wondering why I committed the deed in the first place, the, wasp, the, the wastebasket story. Or maybe you're not in the slightly bit concerned. Well, I'll tell you anyways. Show me something that is more divisive in the Christian community than claiming a passage in scripture has changed. That will get you run out of the pews in a hurry. You might as well just take a baseball bat to the beehive and then call it a day. Oh, and in this scenario, you're not wearing a beehive suit. Good luck with that. Well, there's the flat earth as well. That too is divisive, given the sheer amount of ball lovers out there. Back in the day, the Mandela effect was a matter of contention with just about everyone. The Christians hated it as well as the flat earthists. Basically, anybody who believes in the Bible. And I was getting affronted from both sides, and so I was like, screw it. Seconds before tapping the delete button. Not my finest hour. And like I was saying, I wish I could take it back. It is what it is, though. The Lion and the Lamb is undoubtedly the most deeply personal Mandela to me because it was my favorite passage in Scripture. And still is. Not the new version, but the old one. I recall opening up the Bible on several occasions to read from it specifically. The lion will lay down with the lamb. Except then one day it didn't say that anymore. Also, this has already been explained in other places, but it deserves repeating. I didn't have the faintest clue what the Mandela effect was. This is long before the Mandela effect uh, began, became known. I began flipping through Isaiah frantically seeking out where it might have gone to. The wolf gave me a dark, brooding feeling, given what I'd already known. And so I closed my Bible without reading from that passage again uh, until somebody brought the Mandela effect to my attention. That's what sold it for me. Nobody needed to tell me that the lion got swapped out for a wolf. I knew that inconvenient truth already, only now I had context. Knowing about the effect or that I wasn't alone in the shared memory was a comfort and a relief. Though to most, it is a terror, it seems. My best advice in all of this is beware when staring into the darkness. The abyss has eyes. Sometimes it stares back. Nine out of ten times, if I were to ask a Bible believer for directions to the Lion and the Lamb passage, they'd say something like, that's easy, and then flip right over to Isaiah, only to be confronted with the presence of a wolf. I say 9 out of 10 when really I have yet to meet anyone within the confines of my generation or older who doesn't remember the lion and the lamb, making the actual number 10 out of 10. 
The nine refers to those who exhibit almost immediate face change. Their entire demeanor seems to slump over, as if they have broken down and are awaiting the upload. They will then tell you they were mistaken, that their memory must have been wrong all along. Watch as they adapt to the alteration to the very fiber of reality and then move in position to guard it, sometimes feverishly. That is what I have found at any rate with the, with the Mandela effect, but the line of the lamb more than any other. So proceed at your own risk. Don't ask me how it happened exactly. All I know is that it did happen. Somebody's Bible survived the purge, and I have photographic proof of its existence. This is precisely why every Bible needs checked. You never really know where another might be discovered, maybe in a thrift store, you know, swap me. Who really knows? A, a church pew. Capturing a screenshot this time around wasn't the easiest task. I, I wish the individual making the video had held the camera steady or at least even taken a picture of it rather than a, a shaky camera because the test is somewhat uh, blurred. People make the same request with Sasquatch footage, but I totally get it. It's still readable, and here's what it says. It's clear as night and day if you, if you study it. The lion will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the, the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor, nor destroy on all my holy mountain, Isaiah 11, 6-9. And I, I, was, I was just thinking about this. Actually, the fact that he's taking on a shaky camera actually gives it more credibility. You can't say that it's, it's uh, easily photoshopped. Like it, when it's shaking around the camera, you're like, okay, that's, that's, that's a legitimate Bible he's, he's recording. Anyways, where was I? Nice. That is how I remember the passage. Personally, I prefer the translation to read, and then the lion will lay down with the lamb, which would be the, the KG version. King Jimmy was all about the lion laying down rather than living with the lamb. I'm almost positive we're reading from the NIV. It's a shame that no physical KJV Bible survived the purge, none that we know of, uh, at least that I have found so far, but the existence of this copy is nothing short of a miracle. I'll take a win whenever it shows face. Notice that it says lion three times. That's something which the nuh-uh people often bring up. The elephant in the room is that we all share the same memory, though they will claim we mustn't have done our homework and read our Bibles, which they have apparently, because the passage already says lion and it wouldn't do so again. Please explain. Why wouldn't Yeshayahu or Isaiah think to name the line again? After telling us that the line would live with the lamb, he goes on to clarify the line wouldn't be picking out the young from the cattle either because eating grass was a thing. Makes sense. The wolf, by the way, is nowhere to be found. Though I have yet to locate a Bible which says line rather than wolf, I do have a book in my possession which makes the claim. It derives from the Book of Britain which is included in the very ancient Colburn Bible. This is one that I've uh, talked about and referred to a lot in the last few months. Amazingly, the quote is attributed to Yahusha Hamashiach, though many of you know him as Jesus, and I'm somewhat surprised that nobody else has found it. Well, read it and weep. When the lion lies down with the lamb, and Shalom reigns over all, 
there shall be found the kingdom of heaven, the book of Britain. Well, that's more like it. There is no doubt about who Mashiach is quoting. Yeshayahu. He is quoting from Yeshayahu the prophet, though many of you know him as Isaiah. And what have we learned? That the wolf, scratch that, the lion, would lie down with the lamb. I am often told I'm misquoting Yeshayahu and that my memory is bad. It's good to know that Mashiach made the same slip-up. We're all misquoting the Yeshayahu passage because of the Book of Britain, apparently. That must be it. Artists and pastors, as well as Bible students all over the world, were reading from the Book of Britain all along and getting their wires crossed thinking that it was the Bible. L-O-L. A raise of hands. How many of you have even heard of the Book of Britain before? Let alone those of you who have afforded the time to read it. Exactly. Now, the people from this group would raise their hands and say, yes, we, we know exactly about that book. But, of course, this is my group. So <laughs> we read from books like that, which is why I discovered the quote, by the way. I'll gladly take the residue wherever I find it. FYI, the present ME is so much larger than an alteration in the Bible. Even artwork has been affected by it. In the 1830s, for example, we are told that American Quaker artist Edward Hicks began fleshing out a series of paintings on the peaceable kingdom. And look how the lamb is portrayed in every single one of them. The wolf is laying with the lamb. Are you kidding me? The uh, detractor will surely cry, aha, though I am invoking another Mandela on this one. I have already shown you that the wolf was never included in the Isaiah passage and think I have an idea on what is happening, though it will require saving for a later part of the discussion. And then I give you here a whole page of Lion and the Lamb uh, portraits. As you can see, they're more contemporary, they're more modern. Uh, but this is the way we all remembered it in the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, and so on and so forth. Contemporary artists all seem to remember the Lion and the Lamb in an identical fashion. I have shown you an entire page of paintings, though there are undoubtedly more. I could have showed you pages and pages of this stuff. Dozens, if not hundreds, or even thousands of them. They're not simply promoting an idea which is never found in Scripture either. No, they're painting a scene which inspired them from their last reading. There's no reason to overcomplicate what's going on here. This isn't a shrink issue, and I'm not climbing into a chase lounge because you fail to recognize the obvious. As a teenager in the 90s, I recall walking into the lighthouse Lighthouse Christian Bookstore and uh, right off Bellflower, um, Bellflower in uh, Long Beach, California, Spring Street in Bellflower. And uh, it was down the street from my house and eyeing the Lion and the Lamb painting up for sale. It was framed complete with an inscription which read Isaiah 11, 6. That's just a smidgen of my own testimony, though. I have spoken to countless individuals with similar memories, profound memories involving paintings, but also craftwork or quilts and embroideries at their grandmother's home all invoking Isaiah 11.6. Grandmothers is the key phrase here. We're talking about a generation, a generation which was still biblically literate before the internet came along to tell them they were wrong. And we see here description, lion and lamb, uh, pattern, peaceful kingdom by Lennox. St uh, status discontinued circa 1990. Here's another notable contribution to the Lion and the Lamb narrative. For most of the 20th century, Lennox was the most prestigious American maker of tableware. China services were even commissioned for the White House, the Reagan administration included. 
Well, apparently not even Linux checked the source material when designing this one. How embarrassing. Among Christians, there is so much anger at those of us who state the obvious, and it just goes to show that their outrage is selective. Why not rage at companies like Linux? They too shared in the quote-unquote false memory, you know. But then we have paintings such as this one. William Strutt is another 19th century artist, an Englishman at that, and the scene which he is depicting couldn't be any more evident. The wolf is dwelling with the lamb. The leopard is lying down with the goat, the lion with the calf, and a little child is leading them, Isaiah 11, 6. It is a modern depiction. And now I'm confused. How did artists from the 1800s get it right, whereas contemporary craft makers and everybody's grandma couldn't stick the landing? Some have suggested the Mandela effect already happened long ago, and that those who read The Lion and the Lamb were victim to it. The idea is that the wolf was original to the text and that the magic has now been lifted. I am open to the possibility, but then if this is the explanation we're expected to go with, it would be completely compartmentalized from every other effect, including the many reported changes to the Bible. Like, like I said, I'm open. I think something else is going on, though. I'll explain what that is after the following passage. What you are about to read is an ancient extra-biblical text, which happens to agree with the current narrative. So this comes from the Infancy Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. I guess I'll read the whole thing. Lions and panthers adored him likewise. Of course, this is talking about a context. Mashiach with his parents, they're heading out to Egypt. They're on the, the desert road. And um, they come across all these animals. So lions and panthers adored him likewise and accompanied them in the desert. Wherever Yosef and the blessed Miriam went, they went before them, showing them the way and bowing their heads and showing their submission by wagging their tails. They adored him with great reverence. Now at first, when Miriam saw the lions and the panthers and various kinds of wild beasts coming about them, she was very much afraid. But the infant Yahushua looked into her face with a joyful countenance and said, Be not afraid, mother, for they come not to do thee harm, but they make haste to serve both thee and me. With these words, he drove all fear from her heart. And the lions kept walking with them and with the oxen and the asses and the beasts of burden, which carried their baggage and did not hurt a single one of them, though they kept beside them, but they were, but they were tame among the sheep and the rams, which they had brought with them from Yehuda and which they had with them. They walked among wolves and feared nothing, and no one of them were, was hurt by another. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet, wolves shall feed with lambs. The lion and the ox shall eat straw together. There were together two oxen drawing a wagon with provisions for the journey, and the lions directed them in their path. Notice how the wolves are not even conjured in this account until it is time to mention how the words spoken by the prophet had been fulfilled. The wolves shall feed with lambs. Say what? They're completely absent, except for that line. All I'm seeing is the presence of lions up until that point. It is quite possible that the wolf quip, quip is another clever contribution of the Mandela, though, as, of, as I have already mentioned, I think something else is going on. Two realities are colliding, probably more. 
The JFK Mandela effect helps to illustrate the possibility that the thinker statue does as well. There is a reality in which four people sat in the Lincoln convertible on the day of his assassination and another reality entirely consisting of six people. Pick either scenario and only two people were shot, Kennedy and Connolly. What is important about that M.E. is the sheer number of people who didn't even need to bat an eye. Among many, such as myself, it had always been four, whereas others had only ever experienced six. Who is to say which reality is the correct one? Well, the four-seater is no longer reality, though I am quite certain it was at one time. The possibility that there are any number of simultaneous dimensions, each paralleling the other, is worth considering in all of this. In fact, I think that that's the most likely scenario. So long as it is not the very nature of morality which is being debated. And obviously, tampering with the time-space continuum is a morality issue. No doubt about that. If anything, the morality aspect makes the prospect a whole lot more interesting. What if Yah gives us a plurality of opportunities all at once so that there are no excuses when we fail to lead a righteous life in every single one of them? Ouch. Fact of the matter is, there is nothing evil about a wolf lying with a lamb. It's not like the lion lies with the lamb, but then watch out for the wolf, here he comes, lol. No, every animal on Yahuwah's holy mountain eats grass like the ox, and I'm thinking we have another instance where two parallel dimensions are overlaid upon the other. If you are older than 30 or 40 and explicitly remember the wolf in Isaiah from the time of your youth, then congratulations, your reality beat out my own. Go stand on the nearest podium and somebody will come along presently to hand you a trophy. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but the last 10 years have sucked eggs. And the eggs are rotten in case you've lost your sense of smell. Have fun choking those down. I want the world I once inhabited. The one where the lion has promised to lay down with the lamb. Maybe I could like revisit the Clinton administration. The Clinton administration is not sounding so bad right now with the world we inhabit despite the fact that, you know, Killary went on the uh, the hunting spree over Watergate. Yeah, we can see another, um, not Watergate. <laughs> Nixon was Watergate. <laughs> Anyways, humorous Josh Billings. Uh, here's a, well, you, you see a couple of quotes here. All right. Looks like humorous Josh Billings and Woody Allen both derive from my broken down dimension. Billings is recorded as saying the lion and the lamb may possibly sometimes lie down together, but if you'll notice carefully, when the lion gets up, the lamb is generally missing. Wahaha. And if you'll notice, he inhabited the 19th century. Allen, on the other hand, said it like this. I've always liked someday the lamb will lay by the lion, but it won't get much sleep. Ha ha. Funny man. He is also a Jew, you know, of Yiddish origins, in case you were wondering. I bring that little detail up because even the Jewish grandmothers remember it differently. So I found this lovely little joke on Aish.com, a website devoted to all things Jewish. It involves a group of interfaith religious leaders who are receiving a tour around the Jerusalem Zoo by its administrator, uh, Shmuel uh, Shapira, who is, he's a real person, by the way. 
He makes another appearance on Reuters, coming across like a major influence in the pushing of the COVID uh, uh, juice prick. Well, if that doesn't completely ruin the joke, worst setup ever. Apologies. Let's let's get through it anyhow, even though the interfaith people are beginning to make a whole lot more sense. All right. So actually, let me just go ahead and read this up here. But it says a group of interfaith religious leaders were getting a tour around the Jerusalem Zoo by its administrator, Shmuel Shapira. Shmuel showed them one cage where a lion was lying together with a young lamb. The head of the delegation was amazed. For 2,000 years, we've prayed for signs of the messianic era and the prophecy that the lion will lie down next to the lamb. How did you do it? It was quite easy, Shmuel replied. All it needs is a new lamb a day. <laughs> Anywho, he, uh, he sh oh, anyways, you see there, and I repeat it. Here's what he said. I'll repeat it one more time. For 2,000 years, we've prayed for signs of the messianic era and the prophecy that the lion will lie down next to the lamb. Wait, 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 wait. What prophecy? I don't read any prophecy in my Bible that records... Oh, never mind. Sounds like 2,000 years' worth of religious people have all been reading it wrong. But we're not supposed to notice that. And then continuing with the joke. It's quite easy. All, all it needs is a new lamb a day. Ha ha. More Jewish humor. Who knew this would be the comedy hour? Also, if that doesn't describe Zionism in a nutshell, you know, with all of their artificial fulfillments, seeing as how the Zionists need to replace the lamb daily to convince you of their credibility, because you get jokes, right? It's only funny because it's true. Seems like the Zionists aren't the only one coming up uh, with joke material. I offer you proof that American nationalists have thrown a funny bone into the ring. This 1892 political cartoon is captioned when the lion lies down with the lamb. Though the dynamic duo are represented by English free trade and American industries this time around, I take it to me there isn't peace in the valley because as you can see, the, the lion eats the lamb. This one I liked a lot. Well, here's a curiosity piece which I've haphazardly stumbled upon. Don't quote me quite yet, but it may turn out to be my favorite in the bunch. I did a little digging, and it appears to be an international circus act, circa 1894, headed up by a Mr. Adam Vanham Burr and his den of performing lions. The poster shows a child hanging out with Mr. Vanham Burr, as well as the lions and a lamb, complete with a caption which reads... The lion and the lamb shall lie down together, and the little child shall lead them. Hmm. I don't want to jump the gun, but I get the feeling he's going for an Isaiah 11.6 theme. How do you take it? It's like I've always said in nearly every paper that I've ever written. They don't make circuses like they used to. I've never been much of a fan for Michelangelo's David statue. Probably because he's a 17-foot-tall giant and his gongs are just hanging there. Excuse me if that was crude, but it's true. It just bothers me. As if, I'm not, if I, as if I'm expected to admire them or something. But then here's something I can get excited about. The lion is lying down with the lamb in Farm, Farnham, Surrey, Great Britain, 
which also just so happens to be the title of the piece. I only discovered this wood carving, though, uh, through a photographer who was offering his photo up for reuse under a Creative Commons license. He quickly added, The lion shall lay down with the lamb is the common misquote of, a of Isaiah 11.6. Oh, is it now? If the residents of Farnham are embarrassed by the little oversight, I will gladly take this off their hands. I'm thinking it would look excellent in the foyer, uh, foyer at the foot of the staircase in my house. I'd have to move the turntable, but that's okay. Uh, it would be my way of letting everyone know which side of the debate I'm on from the moment they enter my house. I think it would look quite nice in my house. If anyone's thinking of uh, a gift and you want to have it shipped over here. And then we're on top of, uh, we're in page 44 if you need caught up to speed. What have we here? Lion, check. Lamb, check. One is lying down with the other, check. Also, a child is leading them. I'm detecting in Isaiah eleven sixteen, but don't want to assume. It says peace, as in peace on earth. Hmm. We have a match. The logo has been informally used by the community of Christ since the last quarter of the 19th century. It was personally designed by Joseph Smith III and Jason W. Briggs, as well as Elijah Banta, and then approved in the denomination's general conference in 1874. Recognize any of those names? Mm-hmm. Community of Christ is otherwise known as the Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Dun-dun-dun. You will tell me the Latter-day Saints is a cult, which gives you permission not to listen to them. That's reorganized to you. With an attitude like that, you're totally missing out on the fun of controlled opposition. Try not to confuse the bicycle missionary people with Latin mass. If it is theology which you disagree upon, I think we can at least all agree that they are perfectly capable of opening up the Bible and differentiating between a lion and a wolf for themselves. But again, who am I to judge? Moving on, perhaps we will have further luck with another denomination. The Ambassador College has a seal which I think you might find interesting. I spy a lion and a lamb and a little child leading them. Probably just a coincidence. Let's see what the inscription says, because you never can be certain. It says, The lion shall dwell with the lamb, and a little child shall lead them in the world of tomorrow. Isaiah 11.6 Huh. Did I read what I think I just read? I didn't add the Isaiah 11.6 reference, by the way. The designers managed that little detail for us, likely anticipating all the deniers in the world of tomorrow, if I had to guess. And now I'm sitting here dumbfounded, totally baffled as to how the Na'am people are going to write this one off. They will try. Ambassador College was run by the Worldwide Church of God. It was established in 1947 in Pasadena, California by none other None other than Herbert W. Armstrong. Oh, haven't you heard? Armstrong was a Sabbath keeper. The Church of God recognizing that unclean food is still unclean. Oh, they recognize. And so kept to, uh, they kept to dietary laws as well. Already, I like this Armstrong guy. He knew his prophets. And anyways, I planted my bum in the pews, but 
more importantly, I've taught the Bible from its passages long enough to know how a symbol such as this one would go down. Nine out of ten Protestants with a good memory would be hounding me down in the aisle demanding, Lion and Lamb, where's that in the Bible? Chapter and verse, please. Chapter and verse. Which makes Armstrong giving them one even worse. Maybe what's really happening is that I'm locked up in a Looney Tunes asylum and I'd better start seeing the monarch butterfly in each of these ink blots or else the nurse will inspect my mouth when she hands me the paper cup and blue pills and then tells me to swallow on the next go around. Look, what is the point in memorizing a passage if you can't quote from it anymore after our controllers go and publish a rewrite overnight while you sleep? I went on a little rant there, but just if you guys, you know, need refreshed on this. The, the Torah movement owes a lot of its influence from Herbert W. Armstrong and the, the Worldwide Church of God. He was a Sabbath keeper, dietary, Torah-keeping guy. He was an amazing guy. And he, I have some of his books, at least one of them on my bookshelf here, which I have referred to in my own teachings. Uh, and so seeing him quote from Isaiah eleven six was like the, the icing on the cake for me. That was awesome. Another person who's always missing with us is uh, missing. I spelled that wrong. He's not missing as in he's nowhere to be found. He's messing with us is Alex Trebek. Thank you, um, uh, AI, for always doing these corrections for me and messing me up as well. He died in 2020. Y'all rest his soul. But when he was alive, there was no greater pranker in our realm than Alex Trebek, aside from Colton, church denomination leaders, that is. Especially since he had everyone convinced the line would lay down with the lamb on an episode of Jeopardy. I'm dropping you a link and another one. Watch it and then answer a simple question. How else do you explain this stuff? I can't think of a better game show to course correct a collective false memory than Jeopardy, but apparently fact-checking slipped right past the writer's room and Billy Weiss, uh, the guy who uh, does all the Jeopardy questions, uh, passing by on this one as well. Here's another one I really like. There, there's, this is the last uh, line in the lamb residue I'll be talking about tonight. Uh, there are others, though, but I like this one a lot. The Sergeant York movie has an old man reading from his Bible. He only reads one line. Care to guess, guess which one? It's okay, I'm giving you permission to say it. This isn't a trick question. Listen for yourself before answering, or here if you'd like. He says it. He is sitting in a rocking chair with his Bible wide open because he's reading from it, you see. And he says, and the lion shall lay down with the lamb. Oh, I put lion twice there. Oops, that's a misprint. It should be lamb. That's not a Mandela effect, just so you know. And the lion shall lay down with the lamb. Must be the, K, the KJV. Mind you, we're dealing with 1941 King James-only audiences. One slight slip-up, and there would have been Baptists across America screaming at the movie projector, chapter and verse, sir, chapter and verse. And another thing, Sergeant York is based upon the true story of Alvin York. He was a pacifist. He became, he became one in 1911 due to his religious conviction, but then went on to serve in the army during the First World War. He received the Medal of Honor for leading an attack on a German machine gun nest, gathering 35 
machine guns, killing at least 25 enemy soldiers and capturing 132 prisoners, all while under conviction. That's that's quite the accomplishment for a pacifist to go gun down 25 uh, German soldiers. The Lion of the Lamb quip has context, and I have just given it to you. I mean, I totally get it if a pacifist didn't quote from, say, First Maccabees or Judith to make his case. Isaiah 11.6, though, you would think a pacifist would know something about what animals to include in this one. What's really messed up is that the old man is reading directly from his open-faced Bible and pranking everyone. He's pranking the movie viewer, but especially his pacifist son-in-law, who's about to hold his breath while the Germans gas his ass in the trenches. Leave it to a pacifist to shoot up a room and win a medal of honor for doing it only to hoax nearly all of humanity into a collective false memory. All right, the next one. So that's enough uh, Lion and Lamb. I am fully convinced uh, that it was a reality at one point, no longer reality. Though maybe, you know, we're seeing a blending of dimension, you know, parallel dimensions here, right? This next one is also very interesting. Samson and the hair cutter, two merging realities. 45. We're on page 50 if you need caught up. I gave you several pieces of artwork for your consideration. Nearly every one of them is hundreds of years old. Some even date back to the late Middle Ages. Look them over carefully and tell me what you see. I am not attempting to trick you. Each and every one of them depict the same scene. It's rather straightforward if you ask my opinion about it. In my former reality, it was always Samson and Delilah. That's with a P on Samson, not Samson and the hair cutter. Yes, I too remember Samson with a P. That is how we used to refer to the big guy in a galaxy far, far away. If you too remember the added P, then I would urge you to attempt and find any biblical translation which spells it that way on your own time because I have other pressing matters to attend to. Examine the artwork again and tell me what you see. A woman is cutting Samson's hair while soldiers look on. That's the scene I'm observing. I'm asking you so that we can all be certain. It's okay, she has a name and you can say it. We are gazing in upon a very important moment in the life of Samson and Delilah. In a couple of them, the soldiers are absent, but then the artist goes out, out of his way to show her looking off screen, indicating that they lie in wait until the deed is done, until the hair is cut. What is consistent in every retelling is that Samson is lulled to sleep on Delilah's knees, and it is she alone who is taking the scissors to his head. Well, here is the twist to the latest episode of The Twilight Zone. It never happened. Somebody cut his hair all right, though we are never given a name. What seems more certain than ever now is that it wasn't her. Read it for yourself. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. Judges 16.19 from the New King James Bible. Well, darn. We had it wrong. Looks like Delilah didn't go through with it after all. She called for the barber. You'd think these master painters would read the story for themselves before reenacting the scene with models, but you know how it goes. We are so knowledgeable now. 
Yes, that must be it. Thank God for the internet, always pointing out how ignorant the ancients were. Another thing I don't recall is the seven locks of hair. Is there ancient commentary upon that? Because the seven number sounds important for any biblical scholar. A medieval artists in particular, in particular would pick up on such uh, details such as that. Uh, I don't comment more on it, but a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, Mary Magdalene and how she was possessed by seven evil Ruakoth. And then I pointed out the seven spirits of Elohim and um, the, the seven... Uh, virgin servants that Asenath had in her tower. And then, of course, Esther had seven uh, virgin servants as well. There's something very interesting about that connection. And um, here you see Samson having seven locks of hair that are then cut off, and he loses his strength, connecting us to these seven spirits of Elohim. Really interesting stuff. I, for one, think that's an improvement. I don't remember that. Maybe it was there. I don't remember it. But if it is an addition, uh, it is improved upon in the Bible. And, you know, before people check me on that, being like, oh, you can't improve on the Bible. Well, I'm just saying that, well, you guys know what I'm saying. It's from a different dimension, different parallel dimension where it is accurate. I'll talk more about that. We see this here from the Morgan Library. There are other depictions, though I think this one may prove to be my favorite in the bunch. It derives from the Morgan Bible. If that title is unfamiliar to you, then you may have heard about the Crusader's Bible. It's an illuminated manuscript, which is thought to have originated in medieval Paris, circa 1250, consisting entirely of pictures detailing specific biblical events. Once again, soldiers are standing by while Delilah cuts the Nazarene prize fighter's hair clean off. And they got it wrong. Oops. Because Delilah never took the scissors to anybody, you know. Apparently, it's been an ongoing problem lasting for centuries. The Morgan Library is even tweeting out a distress message, wondering why it is that Delilah is giving the haircut. LOL. Because the Morgan Bible is usually so accurate in their illustrations, except for this one, apparently. I'm so glad we have the Ministry of Truth to let us in on centuries worth of collective false memories. Aren't you? More recently, the haircutting controversy was depicted in the History Channel's The Bible miniseries. The episode in question was released on March 10th, 2013, and what is happening? Again, it's not a trick question. Samson's got dreadlocks, and it is Delilah who is taking a knife to them. I'm not seeing the barber anywhere in the room. The problem with residues such as this one is that I will be told the Bible producers as well as its evangelical audience were too biblically illiterate to notice. Well, then I should probably point out that Religion News Science released, that's quite the title. They are Religion News Science. They're the authority on religion, news, and science, mind you. Released an article within a week of the broadcast detailing what inaccuracies they uncovered. I checked. Delilah cutting Samson's hair was not on the list. They thought that was accurate. If it's a semi-coherent, biblically literate audience that you're seeking, then look no further than The War Generation. Cecil B. DeMille uh, released Samson and Delilah in 1949. This is the same director who brought out the Ten Commandments. 1949, uh, a decade before the Ten Commandments, when radios rather than television still dominated the American household. And just look at what he put on the cover, why don't you? 
Uh-huh. <laughs> Nobody was cast into the part of the barber. I confess having watched this movie 30 years ago now, it's been a while. But then you should know I tracked down the scene on YouTube and can happily report the movie poster isn't false advertising. It's lifted from an actual scene in the movie. Delilah lowers the curtains and betrays her lover all by her lonesome. At no point does anybody's arms reach into the frame with scissors. Another thing I'll have, I'll have you know is that I watched the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings trilogy upon the release, and the nerds were bringing along copies of the book. Apologies to all the nerds in the room who did the same thing. They would nitpick every little detail which didn't line up with the fine print. See, I'm complimenting you guys. Literacy still exists in some circles, like the Lord of the Rings crowd. The theology fanboys in particular, though, I've seen how these things go. I've repeated this several times tonight, but somebody would have taken one look at the movie poster from the sidewalk and said, chapter and verse, sir, chapter and verse. But wait, what's this? The Read and Grow Picture Bible, this was heartbreaking, shows an illustration of Samson's haircut, and finally, for once, the barber shows face. There he is, right there, the barber. It was released in 1984, and I had my very own copy. Throughout the 80s, I, I attended a private Christian school in Hawthorne, California. It was King James only. I kept a copy of Read and Grow on my desk anyways and flipped through its pages regularly. I'm telling you I have no memory of this particular scene. I can recall many pictures within, but this one is a big fat nope. I still have a copy, by the way. Maybe it, it was always there. What is certain is that you cannot claim I am the basket case of a false narrative via faulty Sunday school illustrations because if anything, Read and Grow gets it right in this present reality. And I've read that all the time as a child, no memory of it whatsoever. So you can't claim that I'm getting it from a children's book. What's in tarnation? On top of the other depictions already shown to you, your basic Google search will spit out these images right into the frying pan of controversy. There is the barber we've all been looking for. These must also be the art pieces derived from the chapter and verse people. They are the far and few between who managed to take the Bible seriously. No wonder why we've never seen them before. I'll speak for myself in saying there is a first for everyone. There's their news to me. Man, I've, <laughs> I've really fallen behind with the latest history books. And then another full page here. You can look them over in your spare time. But then here are some more illustrations deriving from the reality, which I'd hang my hat to if it were still remotely possible to do so. So much gory detail. Specific, too. Often we are given a precise order of events. It is always Delilah who cuts off the hair in each and every storybook picture while the soldiers wait in hiding. Only afterwards do they approach him, first and foremost to relieve him of his eyesight. The origins of this one in particular can be traced to 1455 Paris, back when artists knew how to paint a picture with a thousand words. And now I've come to a decision. It beats out the Crusaders' Bible for my favorite in the bunch. Breathtaking, ain't it? Yep, it's like I've often stated. Nothing says Millennial Kingdom quite like Delilah giving Samson a haircut. That's an inside joke. 
or an inside knowledge for those of you who've been following. If you're tuning into the Mandela effect and have no clue what I'm talking about, the Mandela, I mean, the Millennial Kingdom, my apologies. Oh, look, an old political cartoon. We're on page uh, 57, circa 1809. The woman is Mary Ann Clark, mistress of Prince Frederick Augustus. I had, it took me a while to look at the, the context of this. Uh, who happens to be the second son of King George III. So if you guys remember your American history, King George III, boo, 1776. She is cutting off his donkey tail, thereby weakening his powers. Very funny. And just in case the reference is lost on his audience some 200 years into the future, the artist was kind enough to tell us Delilah cutting off the hair of Samson with a P. It says that there, so Samson with a P. That's one of the few pieces of residue I've seen on that, is what's being referenced. It's funny because it's true. Look, we could sit here arguing all day regarding biblical illiteracy and who the guilty party members are, but after all we've been through, it seems to me that placing other options on the table are equally viable. Given the multiverse theory, I, for one, think it's entirely possible, and in fact more probable than not, that both renditions to the story were accurate in their own respective timelines. Some of you will tell me this is the word of God we're dealing with, and one of the timelines is a liar. How so? There are certainly liars in this scenario, a.k.a. our controllers, the ones who are messing with the quote-unquote matrix, the construct, reality, time itself, but the, authors, the author of Judges needn't be it. I will remind you what, we're all, what we've already learned with JFK's assassination convertible. In one reality, John Connolly's wife went along for the ride, whereas in another, she didn't. Both may be very accurate. In both scenarios, Kennedy and Connolly and nobody else were shot. You could say the same thing with Samson and Delilah. In one timeline, she was so vindictive as to personally play the part of the barber, whereas in another, she was weak and called for help. She couldn't go through with it. Small differences which resemble our own day-to-day -day decisions. Do you suppose there was a version of reality out there where she didn't go through with it at all? I don't know. All right, the last one of the night, and it'll be perfect. We'll be ending right around the two-hour mark. Moses has horns. Now, I want you to pay very careful attention to what I'm talking about here. I'll just, um, I'll just lay this one out, just so you have some context what I'm going into. This one, I do not believe uh, that Scripture has changed. I do think the statues have changed. And... Um, and you'll see what I mean as we go into it. And then one day we all woke up to the latest news. Moshe, you would know him as Moses, has horns. At first it was only Michelangelo's Moses statue, which nabbed our attention. But then soon, very soon, it occurred to us how prevalent the horn issue truly was. It was more like an epidemic. Horns were sprouting up everywhere across this motionless plane of ours. No Moshe portrait was safe, not even in books. People are like sheep and so naturally fickle about things like this, but who can really blame them? Also, gatekeepers can be found in all professions. It would be up to the theologians this time around to calm the normies 
indiscriminately poking around on internet search engines by stating that horns are totally biblical and that there is nothing to see here. So stop asking about it. Moshe having horns was a small oversight is all. The Enlightenment stonecutters were financed by the Catholic Church and so, and so advanced in their Vulgate studies as to be centuries ahead of the horn or no horn debate, obviously. And it's funny because the, the, the controllers, they always, they always change their opinion. They're like, well, people used to be more biblically literate than they are now. Or they'll say, well, we know more about it now than they used to. It just depends on the scenario. They'll kind of switch it around. Well, that is dandy and all. It doesn't answer the question as to why nobody, not even the modern-day seminary students, seem to notice the supernatural growth until the whereabouts of the Obama administration. Wait, hold on. I am overgeneralizing again. It happens in moments of passion sometimes. Yes, there were some people who noticed the horns on Moshe's head long before the rest of us. There is one in every room. They could even make a case for it being in the Bible decades ago. Apparently, they decided to withhold that information from the rest of, of the class in church and Sunday school, as well as, as well as those in home Bible studies, until the quote-unquote collective false memory syndrome came along and made a great deal many of us question our reality. Good thing we have them around in our hour of need. Oh, I'm sure the horns were debated night and day in that person's reality. I'm not being sarcastic either. I'm not being sarcastic in the least. This is another one of those instances where the horns of Moshe may be very scriptural and totally badass if he did. Nothing says a leader of the people quite like a pair of rammers, mostly because they would come in handy when the effeminate mana whimpers pissed you off and needed removed from the room. Way to make them butt hurt, Moshe. He should have taken Korok or Korah out with those things. <laughs> that is that is what is absent from our lawmaking politicians nowadays, you know. What I am saying here is that Moshe may indeed have grown a pair in another parallel reality, and I am not here to question that. It most certainly wasn't my own, though. The horns issue, in case you were wondering, derives from Exodus 34. I will show you the passage, but first here is some need-to-know context. When Moshe came down from the mountain with the first set of tablets, he encountered the moral depravity of Yashorel insomuch that they were tired of waiting around for him and had succumbed to the worship of a golden calf. It's the, the quintessential picture of uh, immorality, of human depravity, or moral depravity, I should say. In a fit of rage, Moshe threw down the tablets, breaking them into pieces, not the horns it incident. Not yet. Securing the Ten Commandments would require another return hike to the summit of Sinai and follow along with what happens. And it came to pass when Moshe came down from Mount Sinai with two uh, sapphires of testimony in Moshe's hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moshe knew not the skin of his face shone, and there is the word, uh, I guess, Karan, and there's the Hebrew and the, the the English uh, pronunciation of it, while he talked with them. And when Aaron, his brother, and all the children of Yashorel saw Moshe, behold, the skin of his face shone, there it is again, Quran, and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moshe ca called unto them, and Aaron and all the ruler, 
rulers of the assembly returned unto him, and Moshe talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Yashro came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that Yahuwah had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And till Moshe had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moshe went in before Yahuwah to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spoke unto the children of Yashorel, which he was commanded. And the children of Yashorel saw the face of Moshe, that the skin of Moshe's face shone, Karan, and Moshe put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with them. That comes from Shemoth, or Exodus 34, 29-35. A straightforward reading has the people afraid of Moshe's shining face, though I admit there may be going more going on here. I have highlighted for you the three different occurrences when the writer claims the skin of Moshe shone. In Hebrew, it is the word karan, which undoubtedly relates to the word, uh, I guess, karen, Q-E-R-E-N, karen, not sure how to pronounce that, and it means horns, uh-oh, or in the very least, something that is projected outward in a similar manner to horns. Uh, now, the idea that a divine being would strut the catwalk among mortals with a pair of bullish knobs would not be foreign to the Hebrew inhabitants of Mitraim and Mesopotamia, and in fact, the Greek and Roman world as a whole. Seems as though they were all the rage among the ruling elite. I am showing you four separate examples as courtroom evidence. Clockwise, from left to right, we have before us an unknown horned Elohim from Cyprus, followed by Jupiter Ammon, and then in Mitraim, we have the cow goddess Bat. And lastly, need we forsake decades of Nephilim research. The horned wild man Enkidu with the giant Gilgamesh has been an ongoing topic in these parts, as has the Osiris, Horus, Isis trinity. Isis was curved in all the right places, you know. She wore the horns well. There are others. I could go on and on showing you pictures of Pan and Lucifer and Beelzebub, and of course, tons of gargoyles. But then the mistake I'd be making is in failing to highlight the elephants in the room that horns may very well relate to the mysteries of heaven. Just because the surrounding nations understood their Elohim to feature them doesn't mean it's a strictly pagan notion. Consider. This comes from Psalm 75.10. All the horns of the wicked also will I cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. Well, well, well. You can't very well tell me that having horns isn't biblical. The wicked may grow a pair from time to time, but then so do the righteous. Take it up with the complaint department if you have issues with that. The psalmist very well may have had horned neighbors for all I know. And you thought you had bad neighbors, but you've never been gorged before. Can't say it's not a possibility anymore. You will tell me it was horns then on, Mo on Moshe, and if so, then hold your horses. There is nothing in Exodus 34 that would warrant the idea that Moshe had horns to begin with, at least in my opinion. Hear me out. Why would they put a veil or a paper bag over his skin if it was horns they were trying to hide? Seems to me that what Moshe needed was a hat or a hoodie, not a veil. If it is horns rather than a shining skin tone, then when did they fall off or are we expected to believe they were a permanent feature? We are never told. 
probably because the scenario is one which describes a veil intended to cover the skin until its radiant glow wears off. Don't take my word for it, though. Here's how the rabbinical commentators describe the same scene. Let's see, where does this come from? This is from, oh, Legends of the Jews, Volume 3. On Moshe's return from heaven, the people were greatly amazed to see his face shining, and there was fear, too, in their amazement. The reason why Moshe's skin glowed with radiance is because the summit of heaven doubled as a launching pad into the heavens. And the, I, I that probably should have said the summit of Sinai. Sometimes I change my thought halfway through the sentence and um, I need, whatever. It doubled as a launching pad into the heavens and, and the devouring fire of Elohim was rubbing off on him. That is typically what happens in these scenarios. Some have even used the word radiation to describe the scene. I mean, I could dig through various other extra-biblical texts and show you similar descriptions, particularly as they pertain to the righteous being transformed in heaven. Rather than doing that, though, because the illuminating process is a given, I would much prefer find any scriptural text where the transfiguration includes the growing of horns. So far as I know, growing horns in the presence of Yahuwah would be exclusive to this account. Not saying it didn't happen, but it would be exclusive to this account. It will no doubt take the Mandela effect to bring others into the fold. Perhaps we can have this horns conversation again in a year or two from now when um, other things start to change. And at any rate, the Aramaic Targum currently agrees with the radiance theory. It may not always, it may not always, but let's at least see what it has to say at the present. So this comes from the Jerusalem Targum, same chapter and verse and it was at the time when Moshe came down from the mountain of Sinai with the two tables of the testimony in the hand of Moshe in his descending from the mounts that Moshe knew not that the visage or form of his face shone with splendor which had come upon him from the brightness of the glory of Yahuwah Shekinah in the time of his speaking with him that the beams of his face did shine. Now notice there it's specifically connecting with the face with the splendor and the, the brightness and glory of Yahuwah's Shekinah, right? Not his horns. We could argue whether Elohim has horns, but I'm not seeing that connection there. The writer of the Jerusalem Targa makes the direct comparison between Moshe's visage and the brightness of the glory of Yahuwah's uh, Shekinah. It doesn't take a connected dot specialist to figure this one out. It's also what I was indicating earlier when stating that there is no context for horns. I suppose the writer could have said the beams of his face did horn rather than shine. The beams shown as horns, but, uh, but that's not the same thing as saying Moshe was a ram or a bull or a jackalope. So far, I have used LOTJ, Legends of the Jews, and the Targum for evidence, which will cause some of you to want to horn Moshe even harder. You will want to slap the biggest bullwinkle bazookas imaginable onto his noggin so as to prove the Jews wrong on this one. Well then, I'm not quite through with the writings. Return now to the Septuagint. And it says in Exodus 34, 29, And when Moshe went down from the mountain, the two tables in the hands of Moshe, as then he went down from the mountain, Moshe knew not that the appearance of his skin was the, of his face 
was glorified. It wasn't horned, it was glorified. When Elohim spoke to him. Somebody is prepared to tell me the LXX is still Jewish reading material. Very well. Explain to me who wrote the New Testament then. Mm -hmm, the same people. You'd also be aware then of their source material. It couldn't be any more obvious in the Septuagint that the skin of his face was glorified due to his meeting with Elohim. That is what the Hebrew writer was attempting to convey in saying that Moshe's skin was horned. It was amplified, amplified, glorified, exalted. If his look could be compared with, with sound, then Moshe was emanating the living, breathing blast of a shofar. The total opposite would be to claim that he had become a hybrid, but we're no longer going there. And just so you know, I haven't even brought out the big guns yet. I hope you were saving your amens for an opportune moment such as this one, because admit it, for many of you, Paul is your final authority, the quintessential nuke option. I know what it is to bring a knife to a gunfight, and so I came prepared with the semi-automatic of scripture memory verses this time around. 2 Corinthians. Read it and weep. But if, the but if the ministration of death, written in, and engraven in stones, was glorious, it sounds so anti-Torah, it's awful. <laughs> Let's start this again. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moshe for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. 2 Corinthians 3.7 Obviously, Paul is referring to the quote-unquote horns incident in Exodus 34. Only there are no horns to be found anywhere. It's why I'm thinking the other half of my reading audience will want to horn Moshe all that much harder after hearing Paul's understanding of the passage. Everyone is, for all the anti-Paul people out there, you got to understand that context. Everyone is free to their own opinion, but I'm convinced on this one seeing as how everything he writes is apparently suspect, LOL. If I'm reading this right, and I know you are too, it was the face of Moshe which they could not withstand due to the glory of his countenance. Seems legit. I mean, if you grew a pair of shofars and came over to my house for dinner without having shed them yet, the conversation between us may be a difficult one, but I think I could manage in the end. Sitting there with sunglasses on and crying, my eyes seems a bit extreme. If you understand that, like, if, if Moses came down with horns, it would be awkward and people would be afraid, but they wouldn't be like, I can't bear to look, right? Which was obviously true if he's radiating glory. Very different, very different kind of horns we're talking about. All right, top of page uh, 67, tell me, does that look like the lawgiver to you? I'm not seeing any glorious radiance emanating from his cheeks, more like an ashy hue. If I had to guess, Moshe just returned from a Kiss concert, having confused manna with the shrooms the guy in the parking lot was handing out. I visited a petting zoo or two in my day, and those are devil horns. Also, there are groups of Christians out there who hate the Torah so much that they actually go out of their way to call Yahuwah the Demirge. They will say Mashiach's Heavenly Father was entirely different than the so-called 
slave driver on Sinai, often going so far as to claim Moshe was ultimately working for Satan. I, I can't even stand saying that, but you guys have met these people out there. What do you suppose they will do when they are finally privy to the Mandela effect? With evidence such as this, they will say he just returned from somewhere all right, and it wasn't heaven. This rendition looks straight up evil. That's a Sith Lord if ever I've seen one. Somebody is about to be placed in a chokehold. Where have the pupils in his eyeballs gone? I'm not seeing any. My only conclusion is that they've slid up into his skull. Ask your mother. That isn't healthy. All right. And this is where, this is the, the, what the, really the contention here. Though there are many horn statues of Moshe cropping up everywhere across our realm, the one which draws the most attention is undoubtedly Michelangelo's Moses. I am showing you the cover of a soundtrack from my personal vinyl collection. I just listened to it the other day when I was writing this. Elmer Bernstein conducts his own score to the Ten Commandments, the one starring Charlton Heston. And we talked about uh, the other similar movie with uh, Samson and Delilah earlier tonight. They chose the statue because it depicts a scene from the movie. In fact, the grand finale. In a few minutes, you will understand why that is so important to this discussion. Presently, the two horns make Moshe look like he's posing on the cover of Time magazine. Wink, wink. There's no possible way something like that went unnoticed by American audiences in the 50s. No way. You know how it goes with those Sunday brunch pork eaters. They would have dropped the 2 Corinthians 3-7 Paul passage decades before I finally got around to it. Hell, they would have kick-started the satanic panic a decade or two before Donahue and Oprah got around to it in the 80s. Well, you got to say why I put hell there. That's the other excuse I keep hearing from the naysayers. We just think horns are evil now because they slapped them on gargoyles in the Middle Ages. Well, if this is you, then you may want to repeat that sentence a few times over. Say it again out loud and then tell me how it sounds on your end. <laughs> we just think horns are evil now because they slapped them on gargoyles in the Middle Ages, which, of course, where are all the artists coming from, right? That are putting these evil gargoyle horns on Moses. One of Michelangelo's earliest biographers was somebody named Giorgio Vasari. Vasari's book, The Life of Michelangelo, contains the earliest description of the Moses statue that I've so far come across. And this is what he says about it. Michelangelo finished the Moses in marble, a statue of five brachia, unequaled by any modern or ancient work. Seated in a serious attitude, he rests with one arm on the tablets, and with the other holds his long, glossy beard. The hair is so difficult to render in scripture being so soft and downy that it seems as if the iron chisel must have become a brush. The beautiful face, like that of a saint and mighty prince, seems as one regards it to need the veil to cover it. So splendid and shining does it appear. And so well has the artist presented in the marble the divinity with which God had endowed that holy countenance. The draperies fall in graceful folds. The muscles of the arms and bones of the hands are of such beauty and perfection 
as are the legs and knees, the feet well adorned with excellent shoes, that Moses may now be called the friend of God more than ever, since God has permitted his body to be prepared for the resurrection before the others by the hand of Michelangelo. It's funny, he doesn't take like this, like anti tourist dance here either. It's kind of interesting. Like, you know, he, he, he brought death to us, you know, he's like, no, he's like, he prepared him for the resurrection before the rest of us. That's pretty awesome to think about. The Jews still go every Saturday in troops to visit and adore it as a divine, not a human thing. That's a little disturbing. Well, that's strange. I'm not seeing a reference to Moshe's horns anywhere. They're painstakingly difficult to miss. I mean, you, you can't miss it. They're, they literally make up Moshe's magnetic north, seeing as how the eyes just gravitate there. But then look at how Vasari describes the absent veil. It was intended to cover his splendid and, splendid and shining face, not horns. He furthermore describes his face, not horns, as the appearance of divinity which Elohim had endowed upon him. If the Moses of Michelangelo's imagination was crowned with horns, then his biographer missed a grand opportunity to comment upon them. Well, the same can be said for the writers of this vintage art, art book. A reader pulled it from their parents' home and sent it to me. Another perfect opportunity to comment upon those horns of his. And let's see what it says. I had to really scan that photo closely to, uh, to, to write down the words. The spirit of the tomb may be summed up in the figure of Moses which was completed during one of the sporadic re resumptions of the work in 1513, meant to be seen from below and balanced with seven other massive forms related in spirit to it, the Moses now, in its comparatively paltry setting, can hardly have its full impact. The leader of Israel is shown, is shown seated, the tables of the law under one arm, his other hand gripping the coils of his beard. We may imagine him pausing after the ecstasy of receiving the law on Mount Sinai. While in the valley below, the people of Israel give themselves up once more to idolatry. Here, again, Michelangelo uses the turned head as in the David, which concentrates the expression of awful wrath that now begins to stir in the mighty frame and eyes. That's all I'm going to read on uh, that there. He speaks nothing of the horns, uh, this book. And busted. The Mandela effect screwed up royally this time around. First and foremost, there is no mention anywhere of the horns. Let's get that out of the way. But then, unlike Vasari, the art commentators seem to think Moshe is coming down from Sinai on the first go-round. Not the second. And recall what happened. He turned in anger after learning about the golden calf. That is made evident to us in that Michelangelo used the same sort of expression as David turning towards Goliath. The statue expresses his authority in anger. Certainly not the occasion where he grew a pair. I think my favorite part is when they write, one must study the work closely to appreciate Michelangelo's sense of the relevance of each detail of body and drapery and forcing up the psychic temperature. Man, they must have not studied this closely then. Seems like the horns escaped just about everyone until the whereabouts of the Mandela effect, when the theologians thought it was in everybody's best interest to make excuses for them. 
And I'm going to end it there. I have those pictures there. But you can see right there, like in the Ten Commandments, they're, they're mimicking the statue. So even the, the, the writers and the director of the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille, were, looked at that statue and were thinking it was his first descent from the mountain, not a second. If the horns were there, they would have known. They would have known, well, this is obviously, this was the second descent. So with that, I end exactly two hours. Thank you all for uh, being here, listening in, and to my rants and ravings from this side of the uh, spiritual curtain, uh, the unexpected cosmology, and I am bowing out for the nights, drinking some coffee, leaving it up to you guys to debate. I just... You know, I see people's cognitive dissonance kicking in about the Mandela effect, and that's normal, you know, um, when we know something to be true and it, and it hasn't been true our entire lives, but yet we know it. Um, you know, I just had this thought while you were talking about it all that maybe Yah is allowing it to happen to humble us more, you know, to not be so righteous in our ways that... Um, we're right, everybody is strong sort of thing, you know. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw one of those statues with uh, Moses and the horns, and I was like, what is going on? And uh, I looked it up, and I saw that the word, you know, had the kind of a horn connotation to it. But like you pointed out, from all the context, all those statues are, you know, made after Yeshua. And, you know, probably made after Paul wrote what he wrote and, you know, all the other areas where there's context for it. And it just seems like, why would they still make the statue when, if they've ever read the Bible, the context shows it's probably not horns and, you know, space is shining. Well, I'd just like to make a comment, and that is that uh, I'm old enough that I have two very, very distinct uh I guess I could say, in my mind, world-changing events. Uh, when I was young, a child, and that is the moon landing joke, joke, and the other was the JFK assassination. And I remember it clearly that uh, Connolly was sitting in front of JFK, and that... Uh, I think the first shot was from the front, second shot was from the back, and it went through and hit Connolly. If I remember correctly, I think it was in the wrist or something like that, but there was only four. I mean, that was it. It was a four-seater, definitely not a two, or I mean a six. Uh, I mean, I, I can see it in my mind crystal clear because it was such a major event and was televised. So, yeah, the six-seater thing is a joke. You know, this may sound insane, and I mean, even say it sounds kind of crazy, but I can remember both. I can remember clearly Nelson Mandela dying in prison, and I can also remember him coming out of prison, going into basically ruling and changing everything, you know, in South Africa. So that's what's really, I remember both scenarios, crystal clear. And the crazy thing about that, is that there's no footage. I We can't find any residue of this so-called funeral. There's no footage. There's no video. Um, I did find a 
a South African educational history book um, that did pa- that mentioned the death of Nelson Mandela in passing. So that was kind of pretty cool. Some nice residue on that. Now, my memory is it was one of the largest funeral turnouts probably in the history of Africa. I mean, how, how do you remember something like that? So many people lining the streets. I mean, I, I can remember the hearse. I mean, I remember it all clearly. I mean, actually seeing it on the news. Yet it didn't exist. I mean, that, that's insane. I do have a comment. Um, when you were talking about Psalm 75 and the horns of the righteous, Psalm 75 is more about praise, telling the, the wicked not to raise their horns to praise Yah that they would be cut off. I don't see that as horns being the actual horns on a person's head. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. I think that's a really good point. I mean, that that is probably something that, you know, I, I need to probably go back and fix that that is being taken out of context to present the idea that uh, it's saying that people were growing horns on their head. I think that's an excellent point. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, Noel, um, Jason77 asked, uh, what about, what do you think about the Philadelphia Project? Uh, I'll have to comment on that more in another week. And um, that's something that, it's just something that I haven't really covered yet. Okay. Does anyone else have any thoughts on that? I have a question, Noel. So all of the Mandela effect, we can spend a lot of time on it. So what's the bottom line on it? What What's the main reason that we want to look into this? I mean, I know it's interesting, but I mean, I'm just curious. What's your take on this? Where does it go? Well, that's an excellent question. And one thing I said, I think, last week is that starting the process of writing the Mandela effect, I, I'm actually making a book out of this now, as, as you guys can probably tell. It's, it's really getting up there in pages. And it, it, I use the example of cleaning house, that when you start to, you know, you're not doing the deep clean yet. You're just kind of going in there, getting the dust off and picking things up. And you don't always realize how dirty and messy your house is until you get down on your hands and knees and start doing it. You're like, wow, this is, this is worse than I thought. You know, this really needs a cleaning. And it's kind of like that with the Mandela effect where you start looking into it. You're like, oh, I could tackle this and just, you know, a little here and there. And you start realizing like, this is huge and it's everywhere. And the more I started writing on it, like I couldn't get away from it. I, 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 I spent like a week working on it. And then I'm like, I spent a second week and then a third week. And I'm going to be doing more on it in the future. And the reason being is I started realizing how important this topic truly is. Um, and why people need to look more at this and read more about this. Because we're... Like, I don't know what the tipping point is going to be where you have the mass number of people out there going, yeah, our reality is changing. Because at this point, there's denial everywhere still. And there, you know, we're, we're coming into a time of like AI and other things where our entire understanding of reality is going to be questioned. And uh, it's, it, I feel like maybe the Mandela effect is kind of like talking about the alien invasion or or, you know, some of these other things where it's telling people 
okay, this is what they've done and this is what they're doing and this is where it's leading. And it might be leading to a scenario where, uh, well, the scenario already is, is that time itself, the dimension of time, the fourth dimension, all the dimensions, whatever you want to call it, is a part of the PSYOP now. Okay, they are, they are manipulating uh, something that we hold very secure uh, with confidence, kind of like a like a like a baby blanket type of thing, of you know our memories of time itself. You know, we we have this idea that the sun and the moon they go around in a cycle year after year, and you got Christmas and Easter, and you have all these memories of school years, and it's like no, they're manipulating this. And where is it going? I don't know. But the thing about the Mandela effect is that if they're able to make these bold changes right in front of us and watch us deny it. What are they going to be, what are they going to do in the future? I don't know. How much of our reality is going to change? I don't know. But I feel like this is an important discussion to have uh, for all of us just to have a heads up and um, to, to think about our surroundings, to really look at them, to, to study you know, study scripture, study the, the pictures and the artwork and everything around you and just have a sense of what it looks like. Um, because the, you know, the denial is just the, through the roof on so much of this. So I guess if I were to sum it up is that um, it's important to know now because let me rephrase this one other way. 10 to 20 years from now, the Mandela effect may be like, sandbox like nobody wants to talk about it. it's like yeah that's nice that was 20 years ago because it, it they, it's going to get so bad there's gonna be bigger fish to fry that's why it's important to talk about now uh to understand where they're going with this or potentially going you know i i think you know just to take it one step farther i i think the enemy actually started all this for an evil thing but father end up turning around and made it a good thing because when we look at these things it causes us to question everything so it, it's it's made us question every single thing we've been told about our history about everything and we are turning it around and it's causing us to dig deeper for us to uh, rightly divide and diligently seek for the truth. So what the enemy started out for evil, I think the Father has changed it and highlighted to us to make it uh, something good. Something I hope to maybe talk about in the upcoming weeks is something called uh, uh, Project Looking Glass. And uh, I'm not going to comment on a lot right now, but again, I was talking to Andrew earlier today, but we're talking about singularity. And there's there's... Something interesting about that is that all the, the research I've so far put into this by things CERN is putting out and other groups is that they talk about how in the future, time itself converges to one reality. All right. So if you can think about reality in millions and millions of potential different dimensions of, of parallel dimensions, you know, events happening at the same time, you know, at as what we're going through right now. And they're trying to manipulate time itself. Maybe, maybe Satan, because we're in the short season and Satan's like, he knows it. He knows his time is limited. Maybe he's trying to throw this into time loops. You know, maybe he's trying to climb back outside of time. Maybe he's trapped in time. Maybe that was part of him being tossed out of heaven. That was something Pamela mentioned today, which was really interesting. There's a lot of ways you can look at this. But what they all talk about from all the different sources I've so far found 
is that there is they're trying to manipulate the events to their favor, but in the end, there's a all roads lead to the same singularity. We know what that is. That is Elohim, Yahuwah, the Most High, and His Son Yahusha intervening in history to say, "Enough, this is over. It's done." Uh, I've talked about in the past how there's like we know in, the, in our realm there's the firmament and what we call the ice ring that keeps people from moving further. You can't get past the firmament. That is a protective uh, device that Yah put there to keep us from, you know, conquering heaven, right? It's the same thing that he's put these protective devices, these walls up in time itself that you can only manipulate it so far. You can't go beyond that. And that's what everyone in all this research all comes to conclusion, singularity. And the fact that, um, um, and that's what they're trying to do. So, you know, it, it's, trying to win it in their favor. And they can't. In the end, Yah's going to win. He's going to intervene and say, that's enough. Lisa, you said you have a comment. I'm sorry, I'm not reading all this tonight, so uh, just ju just jump in, Lisa. What, what is it? Um, I had posted this earlier. Um, right now, as far as in this moment, because my mind changes with the Emmy, depending on what it is, but I wonder if the mainstream Mandela effects aren't to hide the fact that they're making the Bible changes. Because yes. it really doesn't matter in the long run if it's Berenstein or Berenstein, if the Kit Kat had a, a dash in it. But changing the Bible, saying the lion is no longer the one laying down with the lamb, it's the wolf. Or Yeshua saying, bring him in front of me and slay him instead of turning the other cheek. It changes the basic of what the Messiah's character was and that that's what they're trying to hide with all the rest of it. Um, so I wanted to make a point that um, when it comes down to this Mandela effect, if we're in the time of the great deception, well, immediately before that, you might've had the fiery judgment mud floods, but before that was the millennial reign. So I think there would be two two scenarios. One is that this was a power given when he was released, Hasatan was released, given to him for the great deception. Or as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be, you know, when he returns. And it might might have been that way then. But I it, it would not have been during the millennial reign, even though there were people outside of the kingdom during that reign, I, they wouldn't have had any kind of uh, ability to have so much deception in there. And because it's the season of deception, this has got to be one of the powers that were given over to them to use. I am. Um, I really liked, uh, and I'll, I'll give, of course, Pamela credit for this too. We were talking earlier today, and she was telling me how you know she and I said this earlier tonight that she believes that when Satan was cast out of heaven, that he was cast into time and i really had to think about that i'm like that's a really interesting thought because you know one of the the things about the spiritual world that i have asked is is the spiritual world locked in time or are they outside of time and um i think it's both but if if and this is just a big fat if right now something i'm thinking through if satan is locked in time like we're locked in time uh part of his punishment uh, being cast out of the heavenly realms. He is no longer in that dimensional realm. He's here. 
is it possible that, you know, again, he's stuck in the short season. He's trying to get out. He can't move outside the short season. He can't go outside of time. He's in it. And that is ultimately his goal, right? To, you know, it's like the plot to the, um, the, the, the third matrix movie where they, the Neil learned from the architect that they were the architect being the Demirge that they were throwing t- uh, history into a time loop so that it kept the matrix kept rebooting and people would wake up again in the 1970s. Sounds like a nightmare. Um, and they would just have to keep going through this over and over again, over like a 30, 35 year period or something like that. Um, and, and so is that a scenario that, you know, Satan is trying for or the, the, the powers that be to, to just do the cyclic loop and that's one of the interesting things about time travel. And it's like what John said earlier, that he has two memories. He has a memory of Nelson Mandela dying, and he has a memory of him being released from prison. Well, how, how could that be, right? Um, and that's just one of the trippy things about this, about time travel, is that it's there, there were things that happened maybe before we were born, maybe afterwards, maybe multiple times. When you look at the Thinker statue, how many times it's changed. Um, how 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 much is, of this manipulation has been going on, and it's something. Is it something that we just started realizing after 2012? You know, that the big year, right, when people started waking to consciousness. Yeah, um, wasn't it Nostradamus that predicted the end of the world being 2012? I wonder if that had any relation to this uh, Mandela effect happening, or the awakening, anyway. Was it Nostradamus? I mean, I know about the 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 Mayan calendar, um, but. Um, did he say that? Did he say that too? I believe I did. I'm sure somebody else can verify that probably knows. Um, but I find it interesting because uh, some people would say that um, you're coming to the end of the world. I, like in the Q circles, it's like you're coming to the end of the world. But the reality is, it's the end of their world. We're coming to the world that is to come. You know, Yahusha returning for the final time and all that. His kingdom and all that good stuff. So I'm curious if that was what. Nostradamus or whomever in the Mayan calendar actually referred to as that world was going to end. Yeah, and that's a really interesting thought as well, especially when you look at the the theme of the phoenix, how the phoenix, you know, arrives every 500 years, right? And one of the, the ideas of ages is that it's not just that one age ends and another begins like a the snap of a finger, it it's it's it, they kind of bleed into each other and so it's it's one of those things as we talk about coming into the age of aquarius are we in aquarius yet have we begun the transition into it you know how quickly does that happen uh, i talked about that in my presentation on the hidden wilderness when you know you look at the prog clock and where the it, the sun the age of aquarius the constellation aquarius which would have been about a week ago uh with the new year, uh, when the sun, you know, it it's not really in the constellation yet, but it's almost there, and people are trying to figure that out. Uh, so that could be with 2012. It's the idea of like the, the phoenix, you know, 500 years since the millennial kingdom, the short season's coming to an end, uh, which is a wonderful thought if that's if that's happening, and uh, we're bleeding into eternity. I I don't know if that's where you're going with it. That's what I was thinking when you said that. Yeah, I like that idea. I mean, what if the Mandela effect is just a part of that transitioning into, you know, after that, you know, into the next age? Could be. 
You know, I was wondering um, when y'all confuse the languages of Tower of Babel, the practicality of that is that people that were speaking one language but all of a sudden fluently know another language and speak another language. How many of them would have thought they always spoke that language? And it was just like a transition and reality for them. Can you can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, okay, great. It's Ariel. I just wanted to mention about the thinker. There was more than one thinker created. There actually were several different uh, thinkers created by Rodin. And they're still in different locations in the world. So I'm not quite sure if that one actually qualifies for Mandela effect. Because I know of at least four different thinkers. Yeah, there's about 28 molds all over the world. Uh, he premiered the original in Paris in, I think, 1904. And then the government made a mold of that one and set it up. In, and then he started spreading those molds all over the world. But he actually created four different styles of thinker. Okay. As well. So, like, it, he didn't just do one model, which they they did replicate, yes. Um but he did more than, he did at least four different I'll have to look into that. That's the first I've heard that, uh, especially since the official websites like Wikipedia and uh, art books and other things on the history of it that I was looking at never mentioned that. Um, but I would, yeah, that's the first I've ever heard that. And uh, I'd be happy to look more into that. The, the problem, though, is, again, is that, all the all the moldings of the the twenty eight something all across the world, they they're all exactly the same. So it's it's the the residue through history that's showing these different moldings that we no longer have. So I guess my question would be, what happened to these four different moldings? Because we only have one today. Well, the and thinker that they show today certainly is not the thinker that I remember. That's for sure. Well, there you go. Yeah. And I mean, I'm no expert on it. I didn't, I haven't tracked them around the world. It's not an interest, but it's just in my casual readings on things from time to time. That was something that I, I was aware of that I had read. So I assume it's the truth, but you know, it may not be. <laughs> but I remember as a child, it definitely was the lion and lamb in the, um, in the scriptures. And I, I was brought up as a Jehovah's Witness. And of course, they always did their awaken watchtowers and they had big colored pictures. And it was always a lion and a lamb next to each other. There was no um, there was no wolf. And that's that's interesting, too, because the Jehovah's Witnesses now I, here I am live and I, I hate to mess this up. But the, the Jehovah's Witnesses pushed the 144,000, correct? Yes. So. Their, you know, their whole idea is, and I, I'm not sure if their official statement uh, position now with Tower is that the 144,000 have been filled or not. I think they have, uh, but that's kind of interesting for the organization or the denomination or whatever that is pushing this idea of the millennial kingdom and getting getting the 144,000, and then they're pushing the lion and the lamb as part of the uh, the millenn millennial Joshua? kingdom imagery. Sir Noah, um, I'm not sure if they're pushing the lion and the lamb today as a child. Like, I'm I'm almost 70. So as a child, let's say 8 or 10 years old, 
back in those days, it was the lion and the lamb. I left the Jehovah's Witnesses about 40 years ago. So I am not really current. I know there's been changes to their theology. Um, and my understanding is they have now even put themselves between uh, your relationship with Yeshua. In other words, and I don't know how that works, kind of like the Pope has put himself in between uh, us and God. I, I understand they've done something similar, but I, I have no idea how it works. But in when as I was growing up, because I was a missionary with them for a few years, and uh, it, it was very simple. They now replaced the Jews, okay? And if you were not one of them, you were done for. And out of them, there were 144,000 chosen ones. And that, yes, that would have been almost filled in my childhood. By the time I was about, say, 2022, that was pretty much filled up because they were very old at that point in time. Like I knew members of the 144,000 and um, who's, who, who knew that they were of that group, they said, you know, just as what they said, right? Um, and it was pretty much filled at that point. So yeah, I mean, they're, they're way out there. That's Nothing's a, changed. Nothing's that's, changed. <laughs> that's crazy to think about. I never thought about before that like, there were people that, I mean, you, you said you met them. They're like, yeah, I'm one of the, you've heard of the 144,000. Well, you're, <laughs> I'm one of them. You're looking at them. Like, to actually achieve that status in life. And uh, that's that's pretty crazy. But yeah, you know, as you were saying that, you know, you left 40 years ago and that was like 70 years ago. And um, that, that actually makes it more relevant, in my opinion, that you have something that the original generations, yeah. Um, of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they were so big on on filling the world, the hundred forty four thousand, and they're using the lion and the lamb in imagery to do so. Yeah. And yeah, obviously, I don't know if if they're still doing it today or not. But we're we're like ten years into this now, and someone was commenting to me recently that uh, that they went to like a Christian school or something like that, and they're just teaching the the wolf and the lamb now, and just so a new generation of children are are growing up who think this is a just standard and the norm and they're all going to think we're really crazy um for trying to tell them this so the further we get into this we're going to find and this is another reason by the way i think this is important to talk about because we're 10 years into this and before we know it we're going to have a whole new generation of young adults who were born afterwards and they're not going to know any of this stuff these memories are going to be dying with us and that's why we need no. to have this. Go ahead, it Stephanie. Might, it might have been me. My 13-year-old who has been at um, our um, Christian school now for, you know, since he was in preschool, um, they always teach the lion and, or the lion and the wolf, not the lion and the lamb. And I always have to stop myself. But what's really interesting not that he's 13 and I've always said lion and lamb. Not that I've, you know what I mean? It's never been a big deal until recently where I've noticed, but all of the teachers are Christians. They all go to church. They have to like fall in line with the doctrine. They all have to pray in the morning, but they pray over their students. You know what I mean? Like it's a Christian school. Like there are very specific requirements and yet they're all saying lion and the wolf. And if I mention it to anybody, 
they look at me with the weirdest look I've ever seen. It's like, okay, I've got a billion deer that live in my neighborhood. It is the funniest thing ever. Like there's so many. I'm like, can we just shoot them please and put them in our freezer for later? But we can't because we're in town. But they look at me like a deer in headlights. When I mention it and I'm like, they all go to church. They're deacons in their church. They're pastors in their church. You know what I mean? They're like pillars of their church. And yet not a single person can attest to or talk to or even have a conversation about, is it lion and lamb or is it wolf and the lamb? And why has it changed? And they're like my age. They're all over 40. So it's a really frustrating conversation to have. Um, Not just with my 13-year-old, but with the teachers at the school that are teaching this stuff. Maybe if you reason with them from the point of view that um so for instance when it, it talks about the lion and the wolf and mm-hmm. then in the next few sentences it talks about the um the fatling and several other creatures which it names mm-hmm. and in the bible what is the fatling the fatling is always the fatted lamb yeah the fatted lamb and so you can use other scripture to to show your point there that, you know, that the, the, the fat, fatted, it's always a fatted lamb or the fatling. And so it says, you know, the, the fatling, um, and then again, in the, the next verse, I don't have my Bible open here, so I'm trying to remember. Hmm. <laughs> um, it speaks again about the lamb. And, and uh, sorry, no, it doesn't speak about the lamb. It speaks again about the lion. So the mm-hmm. lion is mentioned twice and it talks about the lion with the fat limb. And the wolf is never mentioned there anywhere. Again, only that one time. And it's, it's just not even a fit. So if you use the rest of scripture to back yeah. that in the Hebrew scriptures, that the fatling is always the lamb, you know, that that's a reasonable way, I think, to kind of reason it out with people or to show yourself i'm pretty sure i'm also just like the black sheep of the community i mean i've been there for 10 years but since we've come to torah and we've stopped doing all of their you know yeah easter eggs and pumpkins and all of that stuff um we're definitely sort of the outskirts people so anything i say i'm sure they just roll their eyes but it's when I mention it to most people, just that's just in passing to see where they're at spiritually, and there's a deer in headlights look, it's very telling. Just like, what's the conversation, right? And, and for me, I don't know, this is a very deep subject spiritually as in scripture, because I love scripture. And I always go back to what the scripture says. And if it's changing, and the Jesus that I was baptized into and the one that I the savior my you know messiah that I worship and then go to the father through if that is a different messiah then that's being preached and taught and one reason I use now the name say Yeshua is because I know a lot of um yoga instructors uh women who are in witchcraft and different other ideologies and things that have befriended me and come around me and they will 
use the name of Jesus specifically, even while doing like all their yoga stuff to draw me in and then to try to twist the scripture. Right. So I'm always trying, I'm always on my guard, you know, like yeah. what does scripture actually say? What is the, you know, the entire Bible say, but so when it changes, um, and I speak, there, there's a there's a reason I use certain words or not use certain words. And so if scripture right. is in itself changing, then I need to know why. I need to have a foundation that I can stand on and not, you know what I mean? And not be well, derailed from that. Yeah, but scripture is changing, but it's not being changed by, yeah, it's being changed by Satan. I have a KJV Bible here, which I purchased about 30 years ago. And at that time, when I first purchased it, it talked about new wines going into old wineskins. Now, my same book, the same book that's been on my shelf for 30 mm -hmm. years, says that um, new wine is going into old wine bottles. Okay? Yes, in my grandma's yeah. Bible from like yeah. the 50s. Her Bible now has all of the changes. Yeah. All those weird changes. They've all changed. And she's like, no, that's not what my Bible says. She's 90. And so I've actually talked to her about this and she's like, no, that's not what my Bible says. And I'm like, but it says it right there. So what do you do with that? Yeah, I know. Anyway, listen, um, uh, John has kindly posted for us. So let's just take a moment Where? and read it. Isaiah 11, 6 and 9. It's on the general voice chat. It says the wolf shall dwell with the lamb mm -hmm. and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. And the calf and the lion and the fatling together. The calf, the lion, and the fatling together. The fatling in scripture is always the lamb. And a little child shall lead them. So the Jehovah's Witnesses would always have a picture on their thing with a calf, a lion, mm -hmm. the fatling, and a little and a little child leading them, okay? The cow and the bear shall feed. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The suckling child shall play over the hold of the ass, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So you can see there, the, the lion's mentioned a couple times. The fox, uh, sorry, yeah, the wolf does not appear again. So... My thinking on that is that the wolf with the lamb, that is Hasatan, who is leading the Lamb of God away, is people, Israel. Huh. He's there to deceive, to lead away. So I don't get upset about the fact that it's changed now. I can explain it to somebody by showing them where the, lion, the lamb is the fatling in scripture. Um, and, and how this has happened. But of course, you know, a lot of people cannot accept that things in a book can just change. And I understand that because to them, it's sort of like, well, magic is happening and that doesn't happen, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm. So, I, I mean, I have very uh, faithful people who are like Messianic type people, Hebrew roots type people that I connect with every couple of weeks on zoom and um you know even they cannot believe that miracles happen when i've had a miracle happen and i've shepped it you know shared something with a group they can't believe that today 
such a miracle can happen, that God can bring that about. They just don't have the depth of faith yet to be able to believe that. It doesn't necessarily mean they're some wicked or evil person. Their faith has just not deepened enough to know that God can put his hand on you and change something in a twinkling of an eye. And he can and will even today. I do agree in that. And I do think too that in the scripture where it says God is in control. So if Yahweh is in control, the Father, and he allows for the office of Satan to manipulate and change and do these things, and his people will still seek after him and follow him and pray and fast and want to be with him. I think that says something. And even if, say, the scripture is changing, when I look at like um, the Paleo Hebrew and you look at like the different definitions of all these words and what one letter could mean going to the right or to the left and how it could have three or four different definitions just within the one letter. Um, it makes me wonder if maybe we're getting actually closer to the truth of the scripture should say, as opposed to what it says in our English version as well. Um, but because there's this solid foundation, I think that at least I grew up with that what is written is true and what is written is right. And if it's written, you need to believe it. Um, and I've always put my faith in that, not just in the Bible, but perhaps for other things. And as I question things, and my mom hates it when I question things, she's always told me, she's like, oh, you're always questioning everything. Why question all these things? Just live your life, right? I'm like, well, they don't make sense. <laughs> I always get told I'm too serious and think too much, so. Right. Well, I'm like, well, mom, I have a type A blood and I'm a very type A personality and I'm firstborn. That's just how I am. You're just going to have to accept that. But, you know, but what if some of these things that are changing actually are closer to the truth of what, say, the Hebrew actually said than what we were led to believe that our Bible is the infallible word of God in English? You know what I mean? Does that resonate with anybody? Well, we'll let you know, but I'm glad to, that I know both. I, I'm glad that I know what it said way back. <laughs> well, I, I do, I do uh, looks like someone else wants to say something. I do want to say that um, I appreciate the maturity of this group. And, you know, I try to talk about a lot of different things in here. And uh, who knows what I'll be talking about a month from now or two months from now is, you know, we explore these issues out. Uh, but I, I, I just want to thank you all for your maturity that, you know, some people in here may not agree with any of this. And you're sitting here, you're listening and and not, you know, and <laughs> just not freaking out on me uh, because this really is a deeply personal issue, right? The Bible and the mere uh, this wasn't your typical Bible study, obviously, right? I spent a lot of time talking about Isaiah eleven six, about um, Exodus uh, with the 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 radiant glow of of Moses, or perhaps the horns, as well as Samson and Delilah, and uh, making the suggestion or the belief that they have changed. And uh, you guys have done great, and I appreciate all of you. It looks like somebody else wanted to say something before we kind of close shop on this tonight. 
I think we're all just digging for the truth, or most of us are. And that means not being stuck in one position.